Hello everybody, I just did a recording with some of my friends from a Discord channel that I'm on about uh, intentional communities. We do briefly mention California in it, but it's not a California-centric talk. It's quite a long talk, but uh, I didn't really think it fit in with Tasting Anarchy podcast. And since we do mention California a little bit on this, I thought maybe it would be a, a good one to maybe once a month put this up on the California in Exile stream. So if you're one of my early California in Exile fans, enjoy this talk about intentional communities. Later. All right. Uh, welcome to this, the first roundtable discussion on, uh, I guess, uh, this inner circle server about intentional communities. Um, I'm going to put this up on uh, my one of my new podcast channels, the uh, Californian in Exile. Uh, if anybody else who is participating wants to put it up on their channel as well, then uh, go for it. Uh, I wrote a couple of prompts that will kind of help uh, facilitate the co conversation moving forward. Uh, but if everybody would like to go around and just sort of uh, introduce themselves, I think that would be a good start. I'm Jake Lindsay. Uh, I'm from the California in Exile and Tasting Anarchy, and also co-founder of Childeberg. So uh, that's uh, my introduction. Whoever wants to go next, go next. Uh, I am Ace from and Ace Arcus, Ace underscore Arcus on Twitter, and that's my introduction. All right, uh, Gore Brewing here. Uh, I'm just a Gore Brewing on Twitter, and the guy that brings some homebrew down to Childeberg. I'm Bill. I go by Cynical in New York on Twitter. Just a guy in New York, and that's my intro. <laughs> right on. Anybody else want to uh, give an intro? I think I think that Bird said he was going to be muted, or uh, Goth Brooks, or Goth, Goth. I can't read anything. Okay. Anyways. <laughs> no, you got it right. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, all right. So uh, let's go ahead. I, I can go ahead and give the first uh, prompt, and uh, I'll answer. I'll, I'll give the prompt, and I'll answer the question. Uh, to for what I thought about before I started kind of looking into intentional communities, but uh, I'll go ahead and kind of define it for people. And uh, so an intentional community is basically a group of people who get together, uh, create a, a community uh, with a particular intent in mind. So this makes it a little bit different than like uh, most HOAs or things like that, because this is a community that's built around uh, a set of ideas usually, or uh, some sort of goal in mind for the development of the community. Um, and, you know, because I am a uh, founder of Childeberg and very much uh, going to try to make Childeberg town happen, that's how I kind of started getting interested in this. I had so much fun with everybody at Childeberg both times. I decided, well, why can't I just uh, live with people all the time and just have a good time all the time? <laughs> and so uh, that's kind of my goal. Plus, I think that, and I, I've I've been getting this from a lot of people as these ideas start circulating, circulating around that uh, I think a lot of it is the result of, of what's going on with COVID uh, wrong or right uh, is that people are kind of going, uh, maybe it's a better idea for me to live around people that I have at least some semblance of trust and that have some sort of uh, alignment with my ideas. So the first prompt that I have is uh, people's initial reaction to what an intentional community is and uh, what do you guys normally think of immediately when you think of that. And I'll say, when I have given this to people who I would consider more normies, their immediate response is Waco, uh, you know, Ruby Ridge, Jonestown, all of the, all of the kind of culty, but they are intentional communities, all the sort of culty ones that made the news because there was a, <laughs> some sort of mass death. Um, so uh, what are some, like some of these things that come to, 
came to your mind at first when you started thinking about intentional communities or when you saw that this was going to be a chat? Uh, you know, did you guys have any other first thoughts about it? Uh, we'll go ahead and I guess go to Ace first. He's at the top of my list. Yeah. Uh, when I first heard about this, I was extremely, extremely excited. Right. So like the, it, it so it kind of reminded me of, you know, the free state project in in, a, in some sense, the idea that everyone's going to kind of move, but it's, it's much different. It's not like a political thing. It's much more of a, um, uh, much more of a group of people, uh, forming um in some sense a high trust community right uh and uh coming together and essentially essentially living free right so that that's kind of the, how i took it when i first heard about it and i'm in love with the idea personally yeah well i'm glad that i'm glad you're excited about it i'm excited about it too uh agora you're next on my list you want to you want to say what first comes to your mind like we talked about it actually a little bit while we were at childeberg around the campfire um what do you think when when we first start? Yeah, about I, I think time? I've. <laughs> I was gonna say I, I think I've slept a bit since then, but um, what I'm thinking just right now, um, by your definition, you know, I, I think an intentional community could be anything that's just like a voluntary gathering of people, and so I'm thinking like, I mean, we already have that with, I mean, it's kind of not not in a derogatory way, but if you think about our echo chambers online. These are these are people who've self-segregated already, and all we're really doing is saying, you know what, let's increase that synergy and just like live, you know, in a community in real life in meat space. Because it's like, why, you know, if you're you're already doing it with your communications, so now it's just actually moving your feet and doing, you know, doing the thing instead of pretending. And I I love that idea. That's been my whole shtick for at least a year now. Is like. Let's stop pretending and talking. Let's actually go do the thing. And so doing the thing is is really exciting. Yeah, uh, I agree. Uh, anybody else want to chime in? I, I see Cold Highway's muted, but uh, maybe he wants to join in. Yeah, I was when you when I the first the idea was brought for us. You know, I was thinking HOA one because I live in I live in an HOA, but more I guess more pinpoint um what kind of what what kind of people and ideas that the intentional community wants to have they want to label themselves as so basically for example for me when i got into my hoa i was asked did i have any kids how many cars do i have um what kind of job do i work yeah nothing nothing political or religious or anything but it it basically basically when i when i look at it it's basically to me, it comes off like a social club, but on a bigger scale, with mo- with more cohesion in terms of political, like um, political, cultural, and spiritual slash religious beliefs, as opposed to more of like a big tent. That all right, these are the rules. You know, if you want to live here or join this this organization. Yeah, and and I was actually sort of on the HOA side of this is I, I have this for some of my future prompts. I don't know if we'll get to it or not. There's I've been kind of seeing at some of the communities that have uh, lasted for 30, 30 or more years. And um, some are, I would say, are kind of reminiscent of an HOA in some ways, or, or they or their, I guess, political structure is around an HOA. But I think we'll kind of get into that. Also, somebody mentioned Free State Project, and I put that down on my uh, list about, because there, there's some things that are interesting about that when you talk to sort of liberty-oriented people, uh, pro and con about it. But uh, before we move on, I see uh, – I saw Oracle was on, but he was getting a little bit of feedback there earlier. 
Uh, I don't know if if he wants to chime in. I know he was he was. I don't know if I have to unmute him. Can I? Do I have to unmute you? Uh, he's unmuted now. Okay. We're hearing some rustling, but we can't hear your voice. I'm here. I'm here. Oh, okay. So you want to chime in, Oracle? The question was, uh, what is your initial reaction when you hear uh, intentional community or or Childerberg Town or what whatever ch- intentional community that kind of first comes to mind? My first reaction when I am when I start brain diving on this topic um, is probably the duality of choice between you know do you do what the free staters are doing and force everyone you know not force but coerce or entice everyone to move to one spot or can we do this at different regional and local levels and and to be honest i i go both ways on it um i think it's really hard to to fit everyone into one specific geographical region so many people have you know the the family and the job and it's hard to transition to a new place so I think to start conglomerating little groups closer and closer towards each other is a great first step, and it's so much more doable than having someone move across the country. That's my first thoughts. Yeah, that's I've got some notes on that as well because I, I that's sort of one of the things I was kind of thinking about too is that there's a couple of different ways that you could go about it, and also from sort of the some of the research I did too, there does seem to be a size component to one of these intentional communities being successful and uh, achieving some sort of longevity. Once they get past a certain size, that seems to be when they kind of break down. I'm not entirely sure why that is, but I thought maybe that would be something later on in the conversation we can think about. Uh, I see we also have uh, Alexis on. Alexis, you want to chime in or are you you just listening? I see you lighting up, but I can't hear you. She's just listening. Okay. All right. Just wanted to make sure. All right. Um, Then I guess... uh, Gustav, are you uh, are you joining in on the conversation, or are you also sure? Just... I'd love to if you can hear me. Okay. Yep, I can. You sound fine. So the first thing I think of is I think of uh, good neighbors, uh, people who are preferably chill, if you will. Um, but I also think uh, safety. If um, you know, good neighbors who are safe, uh, reliable, um, who can help you out if need be. That's the first yeah. thing I think. Yeah, and that that does that seems see this is what's really interesting about this is that this group of people and it may be because we've these ideas have kind of already percolated a little bit in our minds is we don't immediately think of Jonestown or you know Waco or something like that. Whereas like when I talk about this with you know quote unquote normies is that's kind of what they first think of their oh you're going to get the feds to come and kill you all or uh, you know <laughs> or you're all going to commit suicide or whatever you know that that kind of thing. But for us, it's more like no, this is like. It, like almost on the hippie scale a little bit where it's like, well, no, we're going to, we're going to, you know, join together or, or figure out a way to live the way that we want to live and kind of, uh, you know, improve our own lives in, in a community that benefits us and that we can choose. Like I liked that what, uh, I don't remember who mentioned it, but it was the, that we already kind of formed our echo chambers online and a lot of people like poo poo that or whatever, but like, I think, you know, why would I want to deal with people I don't like? So I would rather live in an echo chamber. And exactly. Can I, can I add to that too? Um, sure. Uh, I was just thinking like, if, if you want to, I, I don't mean to jump ahead a whole lot, but if, if you want to think economically about it, like it is a little bit easier to deal with people who are going to deal with you in the way that you want, you know, um, for those of us who are agorists and things, uh, if we're nearby, because one of the things that, uh, I found inhibiting with my hobbies and stuff would be like shipping costs and the, the idea that, well, I've got this huge online community who's really interested in the things I make, but I'm going to have to 
sell the thing for the shipping cost is going to be like almost the same price as the thing I'm selling. You know what I mean? So I think, I do think distance is a factor, but I, I totally get um, Oracle's point about trying to do that locally as, as opposed to moving halfway across the country. Well, yeah. And I think that, that, that may, maybe, I mean, cause we're going to let this conversation sort of meander where it goes. I just have the prompts to make sure that none of us mm-hmm. are like, you know, picking our nose, not knowing what to say, but um, mm-hmm. the, Sort of on that note is one of the goals that I had for Childerberg Town when, when, and you know, it, this seems, I think, lofty to some degree, but like I'm married to my wife and she's going to make me do it. So, uh, <laughs> so there will be something Childerberg Town at some point. I don't know where or when, but one of the goals I had for this was there, there's this project that I was following a, a lot back, uh, in the early 2010s, late, late, uh, probably like 2009, 2011, that, it, and it's still around actually, uh, but it's called, uh, open source. Uh, I think it's called Open Source Ecology. I'd have to relook it up. But it was this project where their goal was to basically give you instructions on how to make from uh, locally sourced materials all of the things that you need to have a small civilization, a small town. Uh, you can make tractors and brick presses and aluminum extractors and uh, lathes and uh, all those types of things. Those were all the machines that they had identified as being crucial to a small modern civilization. And their goal was that you'd be able to get all of this information and the instructions on how to do it on. Now this is, this is what dates it on a DVD. So, (laughs) uh, and which is still actually not a bad idea, although I don't have any DVD players anymore, so I'm not sure how I'd access that information, but um, that was their goal is that it would fit in about four, four, four and a half gigs of uh, space. And you'd be able to have all of these instructions, all the CAD files that you needed for, uh, the different things, and it would be uh, each item would build on the other item, and the items would be modular. So you would have so like the tractor was done, designed so that you could take the uh, motor off of the tra- or the engine off the tractor and put it into like the tiller, or uh, you had different attachments for the tractor that would do different things. And the guy who came up with it, his his deal was that he was he bought a John Deere and it just broke all the time, and every time he needed to get it fixed, it cost like a bajillion dollars, and he was trying to start a farm. And he's like, I'm, I'm a nuclear engineer. I should be able to just build a tractor and do it myself. And that's, that's how it started for them. So that was kind of using that as inspiration. I was like, well, if we can come up with a proven model that works over maybe a 10 year period or something like that, and make that model available for people to copy paste, then they could set up their own local communities. Like, I don't really want to live in like, you know, South Florida or somewhere like that. Actually, I probably would, but uh, I don't want to live in like the Everglades or somewhere like that I, I, or, you know, the Great Dismal Swamp. But some people really like that type of atmosphere and want to live there. So why would I go, oh, we're going to do this free community, but you have to live where I want to live. If you can get together a bunch of, you know, agorists or liberty thinkers or whatever, or you want to tweak this system because you don't like exactly the way that, that we're doing it at Childerberg Town, then I want to make that information available and replicatable so that they can move on. Uh, and I I think, and we'll probably get into this later on, I've got a couple of examples of things that did work, and I'll sort of get a roundtable opinion from people about what they think about these models and, you know, maybe shortcomings or pitfalls that, that might come up. But uh, I guess based on on that, uh, I'll, I'll kind of let other people say things too. Anybody can join in or, or just chime in. Yeah, I... I... Especially uh, everything you were saying was uh, um, 
it was uh, really exciting to me actually um and i was just it, it brought up another thing right is that with the invention of 3d printers and as this technology increases it's going to be more and more possible for people to be uh, self-sufficient and not in the sense that, you know, you don't rely on the um, division of labor or anything like that, but the idea that local communities can kind of have their own like um, startups, right? It, this is much more possible now than any other time in history. And uh, it, it's, uh, it's the future in my opinion, right? Especially for people who are um, persuaded to our line of thinking, right? The idea that um, just any of us can kind of uh, go off and try to, live how we want to live without interference or with minimal interference at least right that is uh that that's what excites me the most so yeah i'm all on board sort of on that on that same sort of note too i was just thinking about this is because it is people who think like us and uh, a lot of times that is at least i think i think i think maybe we perceive this a little bit more than actuality but if you look at a lot of intentional communities like the amish um mm-hmm. what what the way that they survive in a, a greater society that doesn't agree with their lifestyle necessarily is by more or less being irrelevant. Um, whereas I don't think that would be the liberty goal necessarily. But when you have communities that are on a small scale, like a town of roughly 100 to 200 people, um, it does sort of seem a little bit more irrelevant. And so people kind of leave you alone. And then the the other type of way of getting people to leave you alone is to be like a porcupine, uh, To you know, speaking of this Free State Project, which is you know, being well-armed so that people just right. don't want to mess with you uh, or it's more trouble than they're worth. Or, and, and in another sense of, of being well-armed, uh, well-armed legally, uh, which we'll kind of get into a little bit is uh, some of the things that I've seen that uh, these intentional communities use as legal protection because some protections do already exist if you, if you uh, create the, society, the town or the, the society in the correct way, you can uh, adopt certain legal protections uh, which, you know, it is the government, you know, that they choose or not choose to uh, accept right. it, but it does, it does some sort, some types of impediments on it. But um, uh, maybe if nobody else has anything in particular to say about that topic, we could kind of move on to the free state project. Cause that that's the next item in my notes. And I think I, I was pretty sure it would come up pretty quickly is I, I don't know what everybody else think. I don't really see the free state as particularly successful. Uh, and I, I'm wondering what you guys think about that. I give you my thoughts real quick. From what I uh, heard it, uh, the last Schilderberg around the campfire was, um, well, why don't we do this at the Free State Project? And my criticism was always, I'm, I thought the original intent of that was just for the sole purpose of um, filling out a voting block. And so, like, you might have some people that move there and do the whole, you know, whether it's off-grid or uh, counter-economic kind of thing, but... I think the majority of them are just, you know, doing their normie lives and and uh, really just voting libertarian as opposed to blue or red. So I don't know what you guys think of that, but that that was always my criticism. And I don't know. I, I've heard a lot more advertising for them lately, but I don't know if that uh, correlates to success or not. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with the, both of you guys on there. I, I don't think the Free State Project has been successful at all. And I'm much more optimistic about like little, like almost micro communities kind of like uh, popping up. That's that's much, uh, much more in my line of thinking. Yeah, and it does seem, it seems like there are a lot that are, or not a lot, but there are, it's at least a very, like an increasing number of particularly liberty oriented people uh, kind of going like, well, 
it, maybe the political means is not really going to make us successful. And I, and I think that might be the failing of the Free State Project is even though it's a small state, it's still a lot of people you have to kind of displace in order to take over the uh, command of the government. And mm-hmm. um, and they got their numbers. They triggered it. The people were all supposed to move and people just didn't. And that, and I think that might be another mm-hmm. failing of it is that it's just it requires so many people to relocate. And again, kind of to uh, Cold Highway's um, point is that like having – or I think it was Cold Highway – that it's uh, – relocating is a high expense you do have your roots already in places where you live. Uh, you know, one of the, one of the, I guess, blessings for my wife and me is that my wife's from Ukraine. I'm from California and we're not going back to California and my family's all leaving California. So wherever we kind of choose to set this up, I've got a strong chance of at least my family kind of coming along and they all are, I wouldn't say they're exactly politically aligned with me, but they're more or less as far as lifestyle goes, just kind of don't really care what the government says in general, which is one of the reasons why, they're leaving California. Um, any other thoughts on free state from anybody else? Has it, does anybody else know more about it? Like, I guess, I mean, I've been up there, but I was only up there briefly and it just didn't really, I mean, the people that I knew up there that were part of it were like, Oh yeah, this is great. You know, we got friend, new friends and stuff around here and, and around Keene, I think there, there was, there's quite a bit, but also even in Keene, they don't win anything. Uh, they have like small victories here and there politically, but I think, yeah, maybe on maybe on a lifestyle change rather than a political change might be more impactful. I'm not. Yeah. Well, I I guess I'll just throw one last thing out there if nobody else has anything. But uh, it is to me, it seems like it's, it's a difference between finding freedom for yourself and trying to get freedom for, you know, your whole state kind of thing. And, and I think the set, the latter of those, uh, ends up leading you just into more voting. And I, I, you know, I, for one, out of this group, I'm not a big fan. <laughs> yeah, to me, the the Free State Project seems to be more of a, a voting block more than actually a, building a community like we were, like what we're trying to, what we're talking about now. So I, I would agree that it's not, it, it, it's, it's not, it's, it, there's, the success isn't there. And it's, it's because there's possibly the the goal has not been stated clearly or people just have moved up there just to be part of a larger voting block as opposed to building like something self-sustaining. I always thought that the uh, Free State Project was like the more radical of the pragmatic side of the LP, which like that yeah. that's what I always like assume them as. And, and that that's yeah. kind of the vibe they gave me. And, and that was a huge turnoff for me. Yeah. And, and it does sort of seem like it. I remember like early on in, in my like libertarian activism stuff, uh, maybe 2007 or 2008 around then, uh, when I first started hearing about it, I was like, this is the coolest idea ever. Like we're going to move up there and we're going to take things over. And then when you just kind of look at the numbers that they were going for, you're, you're like, well, unless you're concentrating on one particular area, this you're not really going to make that big of a difference. I understand why they chose New Hampshire because of the way that the New Hampshire legislature is set up. Uh, but in my mind, if if you're actually going to get, you know, 20,000 people to move somewhere, Wyoming is a better choice because there's like 400,000 people in the state. So now you're a much larger block than vis-a-vis, you know, New Hampshire. But th- that's sort of aside. I think that, I think ultimately it comes down to uh, what what we were all sort of saying before, which is, uh, politics is probably not going to be uh, where you make the change. I think it's going to be you make 
you know, like Agora was saying, you make the change in your own life and that's how you achieve freedom. You don't achieve freedom by playing somebody else's game when the result is not, their, their goal is not freedom. Their goal is power over others. And that's what the political means kind of is. And I think maybe that might be one of the reasons why it doesn't work or, or why it hasn't mm. worked yet, maybe. Yeah, that's always been my shtick. Agreed. Yeah. Um, yeah. Something I was just thinking about. Uh, do you think maybe there's there's also, when it comes to, you know, all these people saying they were going to go and then not going to the Free State Project, do you think maybe there is a um, a problem with, like, an ownership stake going on? Like, is it possible that if someone actually had the land and said, okay, we're going to actually plot this land out and we're going to design a small community, um, that the the people who are actually interested in doing that would be more incentivized to do it? Because I feel like if if I, you know, let, let's say I get a whole bunch of people on a petition and I say, okay, everybody on this list, we're going to go buy this land, but it'll be, you know, whatever house you want in whatever town you want in this big honking state, you know, even if it's as small as New Hampshire, it's still a state. It's huge. Um, you know, if, if I haven't actually bought the land or made some sort of commitment other than putting my name on an email list, then I haven't actually put any kind of ownership stake into it. And do you, do you think maybe that plays into people just being able to back out and be like, eh, not really up for it right now? Yeah, and that, that's interesting that you brought that up because that's in my notes too. Uh, for, <laughs> nice. for la- yeah, for later on uh, was when talking about like uh, strategy when it comes to this type of stuff. But I, I do think that that probably does play into free state because if you're not a, I mean, this kind of goes just back to economics. If you're not a stakeholder in the mm-hmm. project, then your commitment really means nothing. I mean, and, it, nope. and I mean, it's your word and that's, you know, for, for uh, you know, that's worth something, I guess. Yep. But, um, but as far as, as far as others being able to trust that you're going to do it, you, you're not, you're not really bought in. You're just more just like interested. Uh, it, it's, it's mm-hmm. almost like just getting people to sign a petition. The petition doesn't really mean much unless, I mean, you can, you can get all the people that you want to sign up on, uh, whatever the pre- the that website that Obama set up where you can complain about stuff. I can't remember what it's called, but um, <laughs> you can get everybody you want. You know, you can get hundreds of thousands of people who sign up, and if they just decide not to do it, they don't do it. And because there's no buy-in, but if there if there was a buy-in, maybe there would be a little bit more. But I can see the flip side of it too: is that uh, there may be a lot of people who are interested and could actually move, but they couldn't do like a twenty thousand dollar buy-in or something like that. Whatever whatever the amount would be, um, and that. But on the other hand, sort of going back around to it, if you have a $20,000 buy-in, it may be a little bit of a sunk cost fallacy, but at least people are susceptible to that. And they, they'll feel like, oh, I do actually need to make an effort here because I do have money at stake or I have, you know, you know that kind of thing. Yeah, I guess my hope would just be that if I was going to put down that kind of money, like some sort of like down payment, if you will, that I would be very intentional about it and not just like, Oh yeah, I'll do this. And then I'll go, Oh crap. I'd put all that money into it. I guess I have to do it now. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, like hopefully that kind of money would be serious. Yeah. Well, and I think for most people it is. And, uh, and that's, uh, maybe we'll, maybe we'll, no, I don't want, I don't want to move down on my list that far because that's that's later on down there. That's, that's like strategy stuff. But yeah, I think, I think that might be part of the free state thing is that even though they get, they get 20,000 people to sign up or whatever, the number was, I don't remember how many they were supposed to. Uh, so few people actually did it. And I do still have friends, though, that uh, who did sign up back in the day when I did. But it does come back to the, the same thing is they have kids. They have a job. They have all that sort of stuff in, like, Virginia is where I know most of the people. They have all that stuff in Virginia. 
and it is it's difficult for you, especially if you are divorced and you have kids, uh, you know, with the child's mom and but not full custody, you can't just move them to another state. And this was more than one person that I knew that were in this situation where they were all gung ho about moving up to New Hampshire. They and they even, you know, they'd even visited, gone camping up there, gone to pork fest, that sort of stuff. And uh, but you can't leave your kids and you can't and you can't take your kids from their mom if their mom's not willing to move. Uh, so, uh, I, I think, and, and that's just one situation. There's, there's multiple other situations. So I, I think that's, I think that's probably why I, I wonder why. And I wonder if this would be, this would actually get into the strategy portion of it, which I would only have to skip one bullet. I'll come back to this bullet actually here. I'll, I'll highlight it. I'm a stickler for my uh, notes, but, uh, I'll, I'll skip down, but this would be kind of, uh, strategy wise. I, I kind of came up with like three strategies in my mind that would work for a first model, um, like a first model society or first model Childerberg town. I'm just going to refer to it as Childerberg town just because it's easier. Um, like a first model Childerberg town. Um, and I'll go through them one at a time and people can kind of, uh, chime in. And then maybe at the end, we'll see if anybody else has an idea. And, and one of the ideas was what you were talking about, Agora, which was somebody raises the funds buys a huge plot of land, sub, subdivides the land, and then people buy those plots, and then they have a buy-in. Um, now, the, I, the the pros that I saw to this is that you have control over the land. You also have control over who you sell to. Uh, the con of that would be you have to raise a large chunk of money, and the and it's got to be in a suitable... So you have to raise a lot large amount of money and if it's if it's in an area where people could still work physically other places the land's going to be a little bit more expensive the closer you are to a major population center where they could find other jobs if they're not making their own jobs and um like for me it it doesn't matter as long as i have an internet connection i can work i'm a software developer so uh that i just work wherever but uh for a lot of people that's not practical they would have to find other other means of making a living so i could see that's one of the downsides what do what do you guys think about the somebody buying a large plot of land is there other pitfalls or is there advantages that i'm not thinking of that are uh that i didn't really say anything about well one i can think of right off the bat is is nimbies you know those 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 people will always be a thorn in any in any property owner's side but over overall no but buying the land would buying the big Wasps of land would be like the the cornerstone. That would be the building block for everything else. Yeah, and that's this. Yeah, so I, I think that that to me was the first thing that I was thinking about. I've got a couple of other strategies, but uh, does anybody else want to talk about just buying a large plot of land and then dividing it up and that becoming your town? I, I also have some management stuff about that later on because there's a couple of models that uh, are built off of that that are successful uh, intentional communities uh, that that was what they did. They just bought a big chunk of land and then they set up their community, but they have different management styles, which I think are interesting. Uh, I, I think that, yeah, I, I generally think that would work. I, I'm trying to think of um, if there'd be any other way just to, you know, postulate like that. Uh, I'm not sure uh, if I can think of like a more practical way to do it though, personally, like then other than buying up a large plot of land and then subdividing it. Okay. So I do actually have two other ideas for uh, ways to do it, which uh, I guess we'll get into that since, um, that seems to be, and again, that's what comes to my mind first, and that is uh, a lot of successful places do this. But I do actually have uh, some examples of the next two 
um, that are a little bit different than intentional communities, but but similar. So the next one is um, I, like I would buy a small plot of land or a couple of other people would buy a small plot of land. And then you make sure that there's land available in a, you know, let's say a 30 mile radius of that. And you say, this is where we're going. This would be kind of more along the way that Free State is doing it, uh, where you say, this is where we're going on the land that like I purchased personally, we're going to set up this little town center area where people can come and, you know, do the physical trading that they need to do. And, um, and then that, that'll be, you know, that'll be dealt with separately. That'll be split off from that land. And, uh, and then you just say, everybody who, uh, this is the land that's available. You know, we've got connections with these real estate people or whatever to buy the land, uh, and, or to subdivide it. And we can kind of come together and help people buy what they need, uh, to buy if they're if they if like two people want let's say one person wants 10 acres the other person wants 10 acres there's not two 10 acre plots but there's a 20 acre plot uh you know we've got the legal structure to help you split that land into two spot into two plots that kind of thing um, that would be another way to do it there is a couple of sort of examples of this uh up in montana where somebody bought land and then they they said okay this is what i'm doing here if you guys want to come and join me and do this the, these plots are available nearby for sale by these other people um that's one other way to do it and then the third way to do it which this has been tried this is actually the the way that they try to <laughs> try to do it in the documentary wild wild country um which is you basically pick a town uh the way that i would strategize this is you pick a town with an average age over 50 and with a population lower than 400 and you basically do the same thing as the uh, the strategy above, which is you buy land nearby, and anytime something becomes available in the town because the town's dying, they're old and people are not coming to the town, you just basically purchase that plot. So people who want to be townies and live in town, you've got plots available for them that you can resell. And people who want to kind of live out in the sticks a little bit can live out in the sticks. But the advantage to this is that you have a town charter, and the town charter comes with legal protection. Uh, and in like in Texas, for example, um, if you have a town charter, you can't be annexed by another town, uh, or it's very difficult to be annexed by another town. And you also have some protections from the county. If for the county doing things like eminent domain and stuff like that, you have some autonomy uh, in your town. Now, in the in either one of the strategies above, if you get to a certain level, you could probably apply and get a town charter so that you could enjoy those legal protections. But that kind of gets more into the uh, strategy section uh, about management than it does into the the startup. Uh, I guess the startup points. Uh, anybody have any thoughts about those other strategies? I actually just—I remembered a uh, podcast I watched. I listened to last week. They were talking about with the the, the large swath of land strategy. They were it, it, this kind of relates to it. They were talking about you know what a super fun site a super fun site is, right? Or no? Yeah, like when you like clean up garbage or whatever, or like uh, clean up like toxic waste or something. Right. They were this. I forget who it was, but the people were saying that if they go to like either the DEC or the state environmental uh, protection agencies and say, "Hey, we'll clean up this super fun site, but the, the, the under the condition that we clean it up, it's ours." So if you you have like acres of land that are that are declared by the feds or the state as super fun. That okay, we'll clean it, but once we clean it. It's ours. That be could be one way, but it would probably little would be significantly more expensive, especially if you don't have people that 
it, depending on the type of the type of waste that has to be cleaned up, you know, you might have to get specialists and all that and equipment and all that stuff would be cost probably be more than just buying the land, but that would be that could be another avenue to explore. Yeah, that is actually that that's a, a very interesting way. There's actually uh, Nikki P uh, suggested this when I was talking to him about it too. Is that some states will give you. Uh, and I don't know how much in bed people would want to be with the government because a lot of times that money comes with strings attached, but you can get special grants and things like that or land grants for uh, things like permaculture settlements and things like that, which are things that a lot of liberty-oriented people are interested in anyways. Um, but uh, yeah, super fun cleanup site. That's interesting. I've never, I never thought about that. I'm going to write a note on down so I can maybe look more up about that. That's a pretty cool idea. I guess uh, when I had originally been thinking about this, I thought that the first two that you mentioned were kind of in the same vein, but um, where like, I always thought like, if what if it was a core group of people, um, kind of like how the uh, Freedom Cells project uh, does their like, they say like eight people is like the ideal number. So I'm thinking like, okay, a half dozen to a dozen people that are really interested in this do weigh one together. But then way two that you talked about uh, would be like anybody that comes in after that or, you know, it, the thing picks picks up steam. Schilderberg has been going on multiple years now and more people are interested in, in just making this a full-time gig and, you know, moving in close by. So I, I guess it seems to me that the first way is almost like I'm going to move out in the middle of the country somewhere and do this. Whereas the second way is almost like you could be on the edge of town or wherever the core group is, and then people could be scattered, you know, slightly blending in with the rest of the uh, the original community that was there. But you you definitely have your connections to the new community, the Childerberg town. Yeah, then that's kind of the way I was thinking about it too. Is well, and even the the second the second two is sort of that is. Um, one thing that I thought thought maybe on on the uh, buying a small plot of land and then encouraging people to move with the next is more like it, it. The reason that's a different strategy I thought of is that it has it has a much smaller upfront cost. So like me and my wife right. want, want to have some property, and so we would just go look. We're moving here. Uh, I'm going to set up you know a bar on the edge of my property, and that's going to be Main Street. And um, you know I'll put it into uh, you know 401c3 you know trust that manages that part of the land or whatever and it's split off from my actual property uh and then there's plots of lands that are available around here if you guys want to come here too and that way it would be nobody would have to raise like a million dollars or whatever to buy you know a thousand acre i don't know how much money how much money it would cost in the different places that uh we're looking at but Mm -hmm. uh then you don't have to raise like a million bucks or whatever to buy it and then hope that people come out there and and buy chunks of it for you um, well, I was just listening to uh, Jack Spierko's podcast today, and he was talking about how um, land that doesn't have certain utilities is also a lot cheaper. So, like, if you can get undeveloped land, you can get it for, like, identical to some other properties, but just because it's missing one or two things, it's yeah. significantly cheaper. So that's that's one thing where I was thinking, like, okay, the first way, if you're going to buy a large plot, is probably going to be undeveloped. You're probably going to be using solar and things like that. Yeah. Um, and you know, to mitigate costs as well, you'd only be doing it for maybe six to eight people. Uh, however, however big you end up as a group deciding that that needs to be, and then and then just basically adding on to it from there. So, I I guess 
I don't know if this is really just comes down to whatever group is starting this, whether it's um, this group here or a group that wants to do it locally somewhere else. Um, how how close into you know the original town they want to be? You know, do they want to buy undeveloped land in the middle of nowhere, or do they want to um, you know have close access to um, jobs and uh, groceries and things like that in the in the normal town? Right. Yeah. And that's, that, that also gets into something deeper with like, okay, how do we interact with them if we're, you know, I guess it depends how separatist you want to be. And that could all be uh, into each individual community as well. Yeah. And I think, I think that kind of will be one of my concerns. Uh, and we talked about this at Childeberg around the campfire was that if you do act incredibly separatist, that invites scrutiny from the state. Whereas mm-hmm. if you are, you know, you throw your annual 4th of July party and invite everybody from the nearby town to come and enjoy free hot dogs and hamburgers or whatever, and you act like normal human beings, then uh, it, it then people aren't really, you know, suspicious. And this is one of the things that the Branch Davidians, I think, had is, that they, although they were, they, they did interact with the town and stuff like that, but they mm-hmm. were odd. They were strange people. People kind of were like, eh, they're kind of weird. But, um, mm-hmm. and, and I think, I mean, people already think this about me and I live, I live in, you know, Arlington, Texas, which is like right in between Dallas and Fort Worth, but I live in a suburb where they're just like, yeah, he's just a weird guy on, on the block. But, uh, when you have an entire town of weird guys, uh, then, then it does become a little bit more suspicious. So we talked about that a little bit was how do you, how do you want, how do you, how do you want to interact with the, the wider world, I guess. And, um, what would be the beneficial way to work? with the, the wider world. I mean, that's, that would be kind of, that, that would probably be for each individual community to sort of decide or really actually be really for every individual. I mean, depending on how close you are to a town uh, or to other people or whatever, uh, or yeah. if you're, you know, or if you're making your town on a, on a, you know, local highway, people are going to be passing through. And uh, if you've got a little cafe or whatever, you do want their money. So, you know, it's, it's a good idea that they have a good time when they're coming through, I guess. But yeah, that's yeah. I think I think you're right. It's like I, the, that's sort of all three of those strategies kind of depends a lot on how you want to deal with with those questions. Yeah, I, I guess what I'm trying to ask is how likely is it that I'll need a green card? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, see, I see what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah. I, I don't plan on leaving the United States. It's, but, it's kind of a joke, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. No. Yeah. That. Although you know, there there is actually some interesting startup communities that are happening down in like Nicaragua and stuff. So, Oh no, I mean, I mean, um, like, let's say we start this town and then I need a green card so that I can go work oh. in the town next, next door. I got <laughs> like, I, I, I to drive into town to go to work. Yeah. I, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, that would be, and that I guess also, cause like everybody's situation and maybe that kind of goes back to why this, this community would fit differently for different people is everybody's got a different situation. And like I said, like I, both my wife and I work remotely. It doesn't really matter where we live. Um, and for the foreseeable future, it doesn't matter where we live. And even like, even my job, like that when they shut down for COVID or whatever, now they're kind of going like, well, maybe we just never will come back because everybody's doing fine working from home and it saves us money. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and I guess that would also kind of impact how you would make the decisions on this because what my wife and I would need to do this would be strong internet connection. And what uh, other people would need would be a physical place to work if they're not in the type of field that my wife and I are in. So uh, 
yeah, that's I think that is interesting. Anybody have any other thoughts on like uh on strat on like land strategy or any anything that you'd want to keep in mind or something we didn't think about? Like I like that super fun cleanup site idea. I think that that was really that's really interesting. And um I'm going to look into that some more. This the super fun a little uh, just an additional uh, note on the super fun. The the ri- the risks, you know, of you know, because after finding out what type of waste is on a fun, you know, you then you know, going to clean it up. You know, there's also the risk of getting of getting sick, right? Know, something you know, something that is stuck with you with the rest of your life. And um, true. yeah, because you know, because you know, theoretically, you get a higher. You know, depending on what if you if they tell you what the type of waste is, okay, you know, maybe you got to hire a chemist. Or you know, so people to analyze you know what kind of waste this is, what it does to people, you know, and then looking at is the is is there is there a well nearby? Has the well been polluted? Is it able to? Are you able to do power lines? Are you able to build septic after it's all cleaned up? You know, other factors that you, that people have to spend a pretty penny to find out if possible. Right. Yeah. So that would. At least to me, that the, the super fund is an option, but outside, if I can't think of anything else, would be the most expensive option. Okay. Yeah, and definitely, and definitely, a, definitely a caveat M tour kind of thing where just you you don't even if if it's a super fund cleanup site and they dumped X, you don't know that they didn't dump Y on that same property. Exactly. Yeah, that's a that's a good thought, but it is also just an interesting idea, I, and I like to read about interesting things. Uh, Anybody else want to chime in on uh, on the strategy portion? No? Okay. Let's move on. <laughs> so I guess this is sort of an offshoot of the strategy portion. So uh, I have an example of a community that uh, I think is an interesting model, and I, but I could also see that people would, uh, I think, have a visceral reaction to this, especially amongst libertarians to some degree. And the only reason I say this is I ran this by my co-host Mason, and um, – and he was like, I can't tell you why, but I don't like that. And uh, But to me, it's a very attractive idea. But uh, it, it's a little bit more commie than I think <laughs> most people are uh, interested in. But so there's there's a, uh, a community in uh, near the Appalachian Mountains in North Carolina called CeeLo. And uh, this community was started in 1937 by a bunch of Quakers. And of course, Quakers, because that's, uh, <laughs> that's my wheelhouse. And uh, they purchased... I think about a thousand acres and uh, they incorporated as a, as a company. So the land is held by a trust and the trust is a nonprofit. And the way that it works is you agree to the company's terms and you get a, uh, I don't actually think it's a lifetime lease, but they call it that. I think it's like a 40 year lease on the land. And you have the, you have exclude, you have the first right of renewal. So if your lease comes to the end, you have the right to renew it. You also have first right of transference. Uh, The transference has to be approved unanimously by the community and new lease purchasers have to be approved unanimously by the community. Uh, And that is how they've existed since 1937. So when you are going to do improvements to your land, you don't have to. You don't have to uh, ask for permission to do any improvements to your land as long as it's. They'll, you have to present it because it may add to your land value, which will adjust your buyout cost. Because also, if you want to leave your lease early, they'll buy you out. Um, but 
it'll adjust your buyout clause, but it has to be approved in order for it to adjust your buyout clause. And it also has to be non-impactful to the neighbors uh, as far as like, you know, dumping toxic waste and that sort of stuff and it running onto your neighbor's lawn. Uh, if you're like, oh, I'm going to put this gigantic chemical dump here uh, and it's my land, I'll do whatever I want. They go, well, you know, it's not, it's, a, it's against the terms of the lease. But um, there's a couple of communities that are, have similar models to this. So what is your guys' initial reaction to the idea of a corporation? Uh, oh, I forgot one other thing about this. This also gives them a lot of legal protection from the, the government. Um, it it limits liability of the uh, the lease holders because the corporation is responsible and it, uh, for the land. And so the corporation would be held responsible. And because it's a nonprofit, they also have special tax exemptions. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why they uh, formed it like this. So there's there's some tax, tax considerations, at least in North Carolina. And there is uh, some liability reduction uh, because the the land, again, is, is held by a limited liability corporation. So uh, what is your guys' initial thought to that? Would it would it be a plus or a minus to you that you didn't actually own the land beneath your feet, but you had a 40-year lease on it with first option of renewal? Well, actually, that's kind of how my HOA is actually structured. The, okay. pro- the property itself is under a corporation, and I'm a, I'm a, I'm a stockholder. Okay. But, but basically, the stocks get renewed every 15 years. I don't have to do anything special to renew it, as long as I'm still living there. The, the stock is renewed. But, okay. But basically, basically all, all the in elite. Well, it could this could be more like a New York State thing that, prop, for example, property and school taxes, yes, taxation is theft, <laughs> uh, are all <laughs> rolled into my HO into my HOA fees that I pay each month. Yeah, and I think that's I think that's one of the reasons why CeeLo did this too is because uh, uh, especially Quakers back in in the thirties. You know they, you know they had just been rounded up and put into internment camps in World War One for not for refusing the draft and refusing to pay taxes for the war. Uh, one of the reasons that I think they did this was a lot of it was to avoid taxes. Uh, and but the municipality they thought for common ground they would need something, and that was paid for by the buy-in for your lease. And uh, I don't know if they have annual fees or anything like that that are, are similar from what I understand people just work together and they take care of the common areas, which are mostly, mostly just paths, but um, they do have roads and stuff, but uh, you know, there's mostly walking paths and stuff and it's, and, and they're the agreement for admittance is uh, has a set of ideals that you are supposed to live by. And if the community unanimously decides that you're not living by those ideals, then your lease will be canceled. Then you'll be refunded. Whatever portion of money is, is available. Um, but so that that is interesting that your HOA has a similar setup, and I wonder if they did it for um, for similar reasons. If it if it's a liability thing or a tax thing, or if it's more of a if there's I'm not I'm not sure why uh, if if there was not other advantages why somebody else would do it. Maybe it's just a New York thing. Maybe it's it's better for New Yorkers. In in New York for for um uh, how, how co- uh, housing co ops condos trailers. Houses, townhouses—they're all structured differently. So, you know, my my parents—you know—they pay they pay their their taxes, their property school taxes are much higher than what I'm paying because you know I live in a, in a condo complex with so many other people, so it's all it's all divvied up. Mm-hmm. Someone who owns a townhouse or a trailer also pays their pays a completely different rate from a regular house dweller pays. So my guess would be ta- would be taxation. Okay. 
yeah, that's that. That would be that would probably be my guess too. Uh, anybody have any other thoughts of the CeeLo model? I am actually, uh, yeah, I, I would be perfectly okay with that personally. That sounds, uh, especially with like with the reduction of liability because it's a corporation. That that would also uh, uh, probably alleviate some like uh, weariness to it, right? Like everyone, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And I, that's interesting too, because like I, and I did give a much longer explanation than I gave to Mason, but Mason kind of, his initial reaction was, oh, well, you don't own it. And, and I kind of, I can sort of understand that idea. Yeah. So that's what I was a little concerned that a lot of libertarians would sort of have that sort of reaction as well, which is like, oh, wait, you don't own it. It's not your property. It's like, well, the bank, the banks and the, the government to some degree do treat the lease as it being your property. You do still have some sort of, you know, governmental legal protections and you can present a 40 year lease to a bank and get a loan so you can build a house, that kind of thing. But, um, but yeah, the, the, the advantages, the tax advantages and the liability advantages to me sound very attractive. Uh, I mean, I guess if the state collapses tomorrow and, and things change, maybe this wouldn't be an attractive model, but like I said, it has worked very well for CeeLo for the last, what, when it was in, I guess 90 years uh, or what, 37. That's yeah. Yeah. About no, no. About, yeah. Yeah, about uh, 83 years, I guess. Um, so maybe I'm not doing the math right. I don't know. Anyways. <laughs> uh, yeah. The, I can understand the weary. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, no, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was just saying, I can understand the weariness about uh, how some libertarians, right, wouldn't feel okay with not owning it. I, I do kind of share that. But then again, in practicality, they kind of do, right? Especially if it's going to be like a high trust, you know, uh, society yeah with their yeah. like-minded individuals in all practicality they would right so it i don't i don't think that would be too much of an issue yeah and sort of my my comeback to uh mason a little bit was i wish i we had mason on this i should have asked him to to come although he's got a kid and he works so he's not gonna, <laughs> he wouldn't have been able to come on anyways but uh was that well i mean not only do you hold the lease but because the agreement has unanimous rejection and unanimous entry um, clauses, at least in CeeLo, where 100% of people have to agree to kick you out and 100% of people have to agree to let a new person in, it's, it's, it is effectively you own it because you really do have that blackball society where it's like one person can just say no if they like you and you stay. But, it, but I mean, would you really want to stay? Anyway, even if you own the property, would you really want to stay in a place where right. you know, 99 out of, a, out of 100 people don't like you? Right. Because even right. in like, even if they owned it, right, as you were saying that uh, if you're socially ostracized by literally everyone in your community, you would essentially be in exile already. So it, it wouldn't really change too much in practicality. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Agora, you were going to say something? Oh, I, I had a couple thoughts. Um, I my other my response to that, uh, the ownership thing would have been um, that. You know the the government already says that they own your property through property taxes, right? So I don't really yeah. see much of a difference functionally, other than that we are doing this intentionally, and that the corporation would have protections. Um, by the way, uh, Bojack here is trying to reply to us in chat because he can't be on voice for some reason. He's in the chat. Um, so if you go to chat links, you could read those out if you'd like. Um, but uh, then then my other thought was that uh, something that uh cold highway brought up was you know the the housing co-op thing i had a guy that i worked with last year that lived in a housing co-op and they were actually like you know how they have like these vertical apartments where it'll be like four in a row and it's one building but there's like nobody above you you have like your bedroom is up top and the living room and kitchen are downstairs oh yeah yeah i kind of know that 
Yeah. So what, what they do apparently is you get on this wait list and you put like, you, you put money down and you get, when you get into one of these, you have an ownership stake in it. So you can do whatever you want to the inside, even though it's like attached to other apartments. And if, you know, as long as you're improving it, like, let's say you completely redo the cabinets or whatever, they'll keep it that way if you leave. But like most of these people, when they buy into it, they're actually staying like permanently or, or at least mostly permanently, like when you buy a house. So that, that was what his way of doing it because it's cheaper. Um, and so, you know, it, that, that thought had been buzzing around in my head for a while. It's like, well, if I can be, if I can have an ownership, like, you know, it's kind of that weird question that libertarians would get is like, can I have an ownership stake in my apartment with 30 other apartments in the building? Like if, if that's possible, then I think what we're doing is a lot less ridiculous and a lot less uh, extreme than that model. So, yeah. Well, and I, I can almost see that like that model could even play into it to some degree. Cause one of the things I was talking to my wife about was if, um, if it does take a 100% agreement for people to move in, mm-hmm. people who are applying to move in do kind of need a place to stay while they get to know people in the community because you're not going to let us just a stranger come in unless you mm-hmm. know them or, or unless you you know trust the person that's vouching for them. So um, if you did have sort of within the co- the within the corporation that owns the land, a smaller corporation that owns you know a hotel or apartment complex or something, it would be a very similar model to that. Yeah. Or you could even have like a way of doing those leases where it's like a temporary lease. And you, if, if you make it the year and nobody is really feeling like you mesh, then they can say, okay, you, you're not allowed to renew. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Especially if it's secret ballot and nobody would feel like. Exactly. Yeah. I feel bad telling this. And then like you collect the ballots and it's like, nope, nobody likes you. Sorry, bud. It's really, that's interesting. I like that a lot, though. Yeah, I really do. But that's yeah, and that's I, I when I when I uh, first started, I, I actually knew because I was uh, when I first became a Quaker. I, w- I lived in Virginia Beach, so I knew CeeLo existed, but I actually thought it was more. I thought it was a plain Quaker community because uh, there are some plain Quaker communities down there that have sort of similar models, and the the plain Quakers are sort of like Amish. They live simple lives, and uh-huh. um, and sometimes they'll do it just for a period of time, and sometimes they, that's their entire lifestyle. I didn't realize that this was CeeLo's structure. I thought that I thought it was just a plain Quaker community and they did like arts and crafts and farming. And but they actually mm-hmm. they actually have an interesting model for making money. They do they do everybody individually does do arts and crafts and and there is a lot of farming and stuff like that on the property. Um but they also run a uh a kids camp there uh that you can send your kids to to learn like outdoor skills. And I was thinking maybe that would be a model that Childerberg Town could steal. And because people do like to go out in the outdoors, you, we could either do it as, you know, a kid's camp or we could do it mm-hmm. as like um, like renting out hunting cabins or fishing cabins mm-hmm. if this was in an area that was near good fishing or good hunting. And uh, that would be a, a way to, to kind of bring some revenue in using this model. And the the portion of the land that the corporation owned that was set aside for that would help mitigate any sort of uh, cost that the corporation incurred from things like property taxes. Uh, so it would make it so that people could, if, if the, the, I guess the communally owned lands or whatever were, um, profitable enough, you could effectively live property tax free in a community like this. 
so that, I, I was, that just brought something else to my mind is you were talking at the very beginning about how you know you you work from home or remotely and that's works for you but if someone let's say someone has uh, you know needs a physical place to work something that at least the core group or like these original members like the first 50 people would would be able to do is also like get a job managing these kinds of things like the the tourism aspect and these like cabins and stuff yeah yeah, yeah. And, it's, and it's not like huge business but it, it is business that could theoretically employ some people and it could also mitigate some of the external costs uh i mean like this thing like we all hate the government and stuff like that but the reality is that we're going to probably have to deal with this kind of stuff for a long time and finding a way to offset that to me is very attractive because it'll make me less angry that uh i'm you know right like right, right now I, we owe we, we owe like six thousand dollars the irs this year and i'm just like I really don't want to pay it <laughs> every time, every time I, every time I make this, cause I, I, I came up with a payment agreement with them and I was just like, every time I make a payment, I hate it so much. And, and I'm kicking myself for not having my taxes set up correctly or well, from what they say is correct. <laughs> but like when I, I was thinking about setting this up, I was like, if I have to pay property tax to live in a community where I actually enjoy my neighbors, I'm going to be so upset by that. But yeah. That's just one, one another thought. Any other ideas about um, in the CELO model that maybe offsetting some external costs uh, through land corporations, uh, ideas that might work for that? Or um, actually, just any other thoughts on the model? Anybody else want to chime in? Uh, I really, I, the more and more you talked about, it, the more I really like that model, actually, especially when you're talking about like renting out like either like um, uh, cabins, like hunting or fishing or even like hiking trails or something like yeah. that, right? Something like that. Yeah, that would uh, that would be very interesting. A very interesting way to like make um, generate revenue and uh, kind of break even, right, from the property taxes. That's yeah, that is actually really interesting to me. So I'm yeah. all on board for that. Well, I think that this, and what, I'm glad that you're on board with this because this is actually the model that uh, Victoria and I like the best as well, and one that we actually think is semi-realistic for just her and me to start out doing is I think that we could, her and I saving up our money could buy land that was theoretically uh, would have fishing and hiking and hunting and that we could rent out like um, tent platforms and things like that to start making money before we're ready to move out. Right. And, and then having, especially if you, if they had land options available, you know, what's really cool about a lot of uh, places like New Mexico or Colorado um, uh, uh, Bojack says you could even hire internal to help reduce costs. Jake, is that me, Jake, or somebody else, Jake? <laughs> no, it's you. you. No, it's oh, you. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I think that's, that's a, that's a good thing too. And also, uh, to Bojack's point, okay. I just wanted to make sure I, I don't, I, there's so many Jakes in this chat. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> it's got a gold bar across the message. It's you. Yeah. Oh, got it. Okay. Got it. Okay. Uh, so, uh, to his point, though, one of the things about kind of reducing costs in that as well is that people who cannot afford a buy-in for a property, um, one another thing that the corporation could do is if any sort of funds that it could save up and use uh, or save up that wasn't spent on like property tax, that sort of stuff could be used to help basically give people a loan uh, from the corporation at either low or no interest. If it's somebody that the, the community unanimously wants to come in. And that's why like having, having it be shares of the corporation, the corporation can do lots of different things and it, 
now we have to be careful about like uh, you know banking structures and things like that because people are kind of dicks when it comes. Well, government's kind of dicks about it when it comes to that sort of stuff. But uh, anyways, but sort of back to what I was saying is that like that the the camp model to me seems like a very feasible thing that that I could get started on my own. Like and uh, and then people could start coming in and kind of joining up. Uh, as it goes and and then we would either reduce the size of the the camping space or um if we had uh options on the land nearby then we could execute options as the money became available and people wanted to move in and then add that land to the corporation and then lease that out to the person that wants to buy that uh and that's that that's an, another possibility uh you know people do sell land options in places like New Mexico Colorado uh these kind of more mountainous rural states or uh states with uh yeah rural rural i guess is the is the best is the best way to talk about it i I don't know what areas most people are interested in my wife and i are particularly interested in northern new mexico and southern colorado uh just because we like it out there but uh i mean it reminds me of the sierra nevadas in california where i'm from and that's why that's why i like it but uh it's uh anyways i i I, i'll ramble forever uh anybody (laughs) anybody else want to say anything about silo before we move on to another model that uh is similar but different and uh kind of a cool another cool way to do it and and a way that i think would be even if even if childerberg town doesn't do this model would be a model that the research should be done and put into the packet for other people to copy because other people may want a more uh urban or suburban style community and this community has that model any other any other thoughts all right i'll continue on to this so uh, there is a community in Davis, California. Uh, this is another one that I knew about, but I didn't realize what their structure was. Uh, I knew about this just because I'm from sort of that general area. I'm, I'm from up in the mountains. So this is this is more down in the valley. But uh, so this subdivision in California is called Village Homes. And in the 1970s, a guy bought up, I think, uh, 40 acres, roughly. And he um, did all the swales and contours of the land to set up a permaculture forest. Uh, but... The way, but he was already doing passive solar homes as his job uh, to uh, make money, and so he decided to set this up. He did home clusters where you buy the house, you buy the land that the house is on, but the house has almost no yard. It opens up into uh, basically land owned by the HOA, uh, which is structured a little bit different than most HOAs, but the entire property is set up as a permaculture forest. Uh, They can grow about 80% of their own food there. Uh, most of it just drops off the tree and nobody eats it because they grow so much. But it's it's fruit, a lot of fruit, a lot of vegetables. You are your uh, home cluster is usually assigned a garden area where you can go and plant your own vegetables or your own uh, things like that. Uh, and I think I think they divide it up by house or whatever. Uh, the houses are um, very low energy usage. They're they're vertical and they're uh, passive solar, but they're close together so that your cluster is your kind of community, but then you have the larger community. So this kind of goes back to uh, somebody had mentioned freedom cells earlier. You have a cluster of four houses uh, and those four houses or four, I think it's between four and six. I I can't remember the number, but they have a a cluster of houses. Those houses are sort of your sub community. And then around you is your little permaculture area that um, where you can go and pick the fruit from the trees. If you want, you can go plant your garden and that sort of thing. You also have uh, access to all of the trails in the community. And it's all, uh, and then and then there's there's like main community amenities like a large community pool and uh, there's a, I think they have a cafe and a game room and that sort of stuff. 
And you do pay your fees every month, I think, like, like a regular HOA, and that kind of upkeeps a lot of that stuff. But for the most part, it's actually fairly low cost of living compared to other subdivisions in the area. And they're so good with their water management that they actually haven't had to irrigate in 30 years um, because of the way that they constructed the property. Uh, this model, I think, is a lot more along the lines of a traditional neighborhood subdivision. And for people who would prefer to live that way, what do you guys think about that kind of model? In in village homes, it's more like it's more like joining an HOA. You do have, or or in a, an apartment complex or whatever, you do have. You do own your house, which is your buy-in, so you do have an incentive there. But uh, pretty much all of the land, you don't really have a yard or anything like that. Pretty much all the rest of the land is set up to produce food, and and they do a very good job of it. Uh, they even even people have chickens in their backyard. A lot of them uh, in like little coops and stuff like that. People raise turkeys, and but it's it's in it's in suburban America. It's not like way out in the in the boonies. It's actually in Davis, which is a medium-sized city. Uh, what do you guys think about that idea? My question would be would be the size of the house. These sounds it kind of sound what I'm the idea I'm, I'm kind of forming in my head is it sounds like they're taking like small townhouses or like tiny homes and then making the maybe basically using the land to be uh, farmable land. Is do you have an idea what size of the houses they are? No, that's a good question. I didn't actually look into it. They have there. Uh, are any of you familiar with uh, Jeff Lawton, the permaculturist? Heard of him a lot. Okay, yeah, he's like uh, he's out in Australia. I think he has. Uh, I think his farm's called Zaytuna, Zaytuna Farms, and it's in in Australia somewhere. Uh, and uh, I learned about this uh, before him, but I didn't realize what this was. And then I had heard people when I lived out in California talk about it, but I didn't. I thought it was just like a hippie community. Um, and it's apparently it's not a hippie community. It's it's just it's a lot of people work actually at the university, but um, which I guess yeah, that's sort of hippie, but uh, it's uh, I don't know the size of the homes from the documentary. They look like fairly standard size homes for 1970. Uh, they are vertical, which is uh, they're, they're two or three stories, most of them. And uh, they don't have a garage. They have uh, like a parking shed for two cars. Um and I think that in the front of the community, there's like different sites. There's more like uh, townhouses where like they, they're attached. The ones that are out in the, the housing clusters are detached from each other, but there's almost nothing in between them. So yeah, but I'm not, I'm, to, to your point, uh, I'm not 100% sure about the size. That'd be interesting. I wonder if I can look up square footage. Because overall, it does sound like a, a good idea because what I was putting in my head was either like, mo- like uh, modular homes, similar to like a, a mobile home park, all more closer together than traditionally they are, or the tiny homes. I don't know if any of you guys watched those specials on what is it, Discovery Channel or um, History Channel? Yeah. Uh, have the, the, peop- the people have the little, very tiny homes. And I'm picturing that in my head with, you know, gardens, places to have chickens. If, if Do they, did they, did they, uh, you, raise cattle or sheep or any any livestock that size at all do you know no no because it's not they they actually they had a little interview with the guy who started it and he tried to convince the uh the the it's basically it's a corporation that runs the neighborhood um he put the question to them to buy the 100 acres next to it to set up sort of cattle and uh, grain growing and uh they vetoed that they said no this is fine what we have here and um it because what they have is it's just 36 acres and it's and I don't remember the population but uh okay here's the square foot the average square footage of the houses is between 1240 and 2912 square feet 
That's not. That's not bad. I mean, it it's, it seems like th- th- this does sound like a fantastic idea. Is this um, people that would go go into this into this type of structure would have to would have to comp, would have to be okay with? Hey, everyone's going to be close to you. And yeah, you're going to have your, gonna have your home. It's you know, three stories, right? That's what these houses are roughly about three uh, stories. It, it depends on the house, but yeah, between between two and three, it just depends on the house you get. Right. You know, so you know, you'll have at least a decent sized house, you know, vertically. <laughs> right. Right. But yeah, it's it's overall, it sounds like a good idea. It's just for people, just you gotta be you gotta be content with the lifestyle that you know, not on top of each other, but you know, you're you're gonna your you, your neighbor could probably see through your window, and you can see through your neighbor's window. You know. Yeah, yeah, that's probably true. Uh, I'd, I'd be curious to go visit this neighborhood and just see it. Like it's, it was interesting in the documentary because they basically designed the the roads around it already existed when they purchased this land for the subdivision. They designed the entire thing to collect the rainwater. So they've got uh, I think thirty six feet of ground penetration for their water, which for the Central Valley now is incredible because uh, they they've got such bad uh, water management there. But they they built it in such a way that it would do this so that they don't have to do irrigation on their fruit trees. And uh, they, I mean, it, it was it was impressive to see it in the documentary. I'd like to see it in person because you know on a documentary it's sometimes it's kind of hard to uh, <laughs> sort. I wouldn't say that they're lying, but it's sort of hard to tell uh, what what the truth is just by them doing like fancy shots and stuff. But like that's one thing I guess I I guess that what the question is sort of leading to is um, when you're setting up a intentional community like this, do you think that it is better to pre-plan this extensively? Or at least for a portion of it, pre-planned this extensively because when you when you're planning like a permaculture uh, system like this, permaculture is something that I'm I'm kind of interested in, and so I've, I've done a little bit of reading and stuff on it. Um, it's not something that you're expecting to be giving you fruit in the next like I mean you will get some fruit in the next four to five years, but it is really something that you're planning for thirty or forty years out. And uh, if you're trying to attract people, and I'm wondering if this would affect buy-in and stuff like that, is if you're trying to attract people to your intentional community, if it, if the, I mean, this is, it's really a time preference question, I guess, which, you know, uh, us libertarians mm-hmm. like, like those questions a lot is, uh, is that, do you think that people who are attracted to this idea have long enough time preference to, uh, or wait, long enough time preference? I'm not sure if that's the right way to phrase that, but um, that they're, that yeah, they have, is. they have like a, they have a future vision enough to, plan out a community this far in advance or do you think that maybe the rotation of people coming through is going to be too frequent to be able to make this kind of plan i mean it did work for them but then again you could buy a home in this city and be and just basically have your normal life that you would have if you lived in anywhere in suburbia in america whereas if we went the rural route and had a community that was kind of like out in the sticks and it was you know an hour to the nearest town uh that would kind of be the the flip side of that would be that um you know, you, you're you're kind of getting you're trying to get people to buy into something that's not going to be its ultimate form for thirty or forty years. I, I don't know if that's I don't know if that my rambling there made any sense at all. I got that's what I'm trying to weigh in my head is like how do you attract people to this? But on, I guess then on the flip side of that too is maybe that's the only people you do want to attract is the people that have that long vision. Yeah, it seems like that. It's that that would wouldn't be the type of community that you would would somebody would move in just as a bridge like. They're in that area working temporarily, but they had their, their ultimate goal is to 
go somewhere else and they just need, you know, a bed. They need a bed and a shower for while they're there. So this, it sounds like this is something that would probably the best way to structure would would be like buying into it. Like say you got to put 10 grand down, for example, and it's held in an escrow account or whatever. Yeah. Um, it's not something that would that would be would be good for somebody who's for somebody who's who's a nomad or transient. If, if you're just passing through for like for five years and your attention is to go bigger, better things, then it's it's not for them. It's more for people that you know they want to set their roots down here. You know, this is what we want to do. You know, we want to grow old here. You know, to use some cliche. Right. Yeah. Maybe maybe that's good. I'm sorry, Agora. Oh, you're good. I was just going to say, um, I think this is why I keep bringing up the idea of a core community. Um, you definitely want to have those, you know, six or seven families or, or groups that are going to sit down and say, okay, th- we're going to, we're going to settle here. We're going to raise kids here. If, you know, let's say somebody wants to come in and, and live for a couple of years, decides not for them, that's fine. You've still got sort of this um, these people that are expanding their systems and, and support systems and things like that. And uh, I'd also like to point out that when we're doing the permaculture thing, a, a lot of times it feels like, oh, we have to have this huge food forest between all of our houses and everybody's got a garden and stuff. But, uh, you know, if you've got three or four people who are really into permaculture and they're growing like crazy, I mean, you can feed quite a lot of people on very little land. Yeah. Um, and that, no. that's what that's what's so impressive about uh this subdivision is 36 acres is quite a bit but they still it's not all full of fruit trees and stuff it's just mostly what we what i would probably describe as ornamental because they're okay. just they're like along paths and things like that it's actually it was really interesting if you guys ever get a chance to go look up jeff lawton's video on it um some people do a lot more gardening and some people just live there like a like a regular subdivision but they can walk out their back door and go over to the pomegranate tree and pick a pomegranate off um, and that's, right. and that's kind of the difference, I guess, would, um, I guess it depends on what you want to do with the permaculture. Maybe that would be, I guess. Yeah. I, th- I think a lot of that long term that you were talking about does mostly play into fruit trees. Yeah. Um, you really, it, it's just a couple of years of, of building a system and, and working out kinks to get, you know, serious production. I, um, and you can you can do a lot with a little is what I've learned from Jack Spierko at least. So, yeah, yeah, Jack, yeah, Jack Spierko's out here in uh, Fort Worth, I think. Yeah, he's the guy that I've been hearing about Jeff Lawton from. I've just never actually looked up Jeff Lawton. Oh yeah. Oh okay. I, I actually yeah. just found out about Jack Spierko because Mel recommended uh, Unloose the Goose, mm-hmm. and they had they had an intentional community episode, which is great. Um, mm-hmm. they, they actually talked about a lot of the stuff that I had here in my notes, um, and. Uh, he was on there and I, and then he mentioned that he was in Fort Worth and I was like, how come he hasn't come to any of the Liberty stuff that I do? <laughs> right. <laughs> I think, you know, he might, uh, eventually because I know one of the people who was out at Childerberg, um, his family is friends with Spearco. So, Oh, that's fine. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing that was, uh, speaking of building local communities that freedom cell, I signed up for that. Uh, when I heard that guy on, uh, Tom Woods's show recently mm-hmm. and, um, he's also on Unleash the Goose. What's that? He's also on Unloose the Goose. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Um, and uh, he, uh, I went and signed up for that. And then there was like, there was like 10 people right around where I live. And I've, I've never seen him at any Liberty functions. I've never seen him at like Libertarian Party functions or anything. I'm like, how are, how are these people not getting linked up? This is, this is great. It's a, that, that Liberty Cells thing is a great tool. 
uh, I think that's going to be, and, and that, that might be something too that we use at, at Childeberg town is, um, a, a good way to kind of organize and sort of keep things going and also get people to know a little bit about it. Uh, but yeah, that, I, sure. I think, yeah, yeah, I think that, that, uh, I just like permaculture and I also like gardening. So I'm happy with just going, walking around, taking care of trees and stuff like that. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that would just be fun for me. But I, I, I guess I, what I was, I'm concerned always about is that like, I have things that I find incredibly tolerable, like waiting for 10 years for something to grow and become <laughs> productive or whatever. But I know that like other people are not that way. And I'm always like, well, but if I want to live around these people, but maybe I don't, maybe I want the people who are okay with just waiting 10 years for the right. tree to produce a lot of fruit. So, uh, I don't know. That's, that's interesting. Um, yeah, any, the same way. I'm dumping money into glass jugs and leaving them for a year. So it's like, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 It's that kind of like long time horizon. That would be kind of cool too, is if, uh, mm-hmm. if you get, if we get you out to Childeberg town and setting up uh, Agora brewing there in the town as we get the apiaries set up so you can get some honey from that, maybe, mm-hmm. uh, maybe grow some ginger, grow some other things that you can use to, Exactly. additives it would be really neat and just have it all there and and then that's a good thing to kind of attract people to drive up spend money in the town and mm-hmm. well um, and you know that was one thing that got us when we were out at Childerberg too was all the wine tastings and things right so yeah yep and the stiller it, the, the tourist there. attraction yeah yeah it's a great and it's a good way mm-hmm. well that kind of comes back around though to um one of the earlier points was is it a better idea to do this and put it near an existing town or is it better to put this somewhere kind of far away from other towns? And if you're near an existing town that has some sort of tourist hub, like like I was saying earlier, my wife and I really like Angel Fire in uh, northern New Mexico. It's a ski community, so mm-hmm. uh, there's people are come to they they come there to ski and to do then the ski slopes turn into like a downhill dirt biking track during the summer, and they come there to do that as well. And there's golf and, and things like that in the area. So it, it, people do come there for different times. And what we found out while we were there is there just wasn't really much else to do. There there was a brewery. The brewery wasn't very good, in my opinion. Um, there was like a country club, but the country club didn't really have a great menu. Um, if you wanted to golf, it probably was fine, but like we, neither one of us golf. Uh, and it was very beautiful up there, but there was just wasn't a lot of other stuff going on. So I'm wondering if maybe that would be a strategy for to kind of put in the instructions for these kind of smaller communities is look for something where you can, as a community, fill a void that already exists, which sort of goes back to another earlier point was how do you make this economically viable so that people can move there? And, and would that maybe be a strategy? Does anybody have any thoughts about, about that is, do you think maybe being close to a hub where you can fill a void or do you think being far out and trying to attract people on your own? being 30 minutes to an hour away from a hub is a good idea. You know, yeah. if you've got people who are going to drive into work or people who live in the hub who want to come out, it's not that far away. Um, and then, you know, you're, it, cause there's a lot of things that would be missing from an potential community of like restaurants and things like that. Yeah. So you, you definitely want to be, I, I would say 30 minutes to an hour away yeah, from yeah, the I edge of that. town. I, cause I know plenty of people. I, there was one lady a high school teacher I had lived three hours away and that's how far she drove to come and teach math at my high school. I was like, what the, but you know, so people drive, I think people drive an hour a day easily to work. Yeah. Three hours is, that's, that's yeah, that's insane. I, I would never do that, but yeah. 
Well, I got a buddy though in northern in northern Virginia, and uh, they're they're buying a couple of acres out out there. And his uh, soon to be wife works in D.C. and it's like an hour and a half drive. And I was like, I don't know why you guys wouldn't try to live closer. And he's like, Well, we can't afford any land closer. And uh, that's kind of the symptom of uh, of I guess the kind of the inflationary society where there's this huge urban sprawl and stuff, and you just can't afford anything, cl- well, especially D.C., which is an insane asylum anyways, but, um, yeah. So, uh, any other, any other thoughts on, on either, either the, uh, village homes model, the subdivision model, or, uh, ways to kind of make economic incentives for people to move there or to make it economically viable for people who are interested to come move there for a little while or, or permanently. I do think it's interesting with that model, how uh, uh, it's different from a normal HOA in the sense that you do own the house, correct? So you do own the actual house, but the, like the land around it is like kind of like an HOA. Yeah, that's that's from my understanding. That's the way that it sets is set up is that they did that intentionally, I guess, was that if you own the house, then you own value in the community is, right. the, is what their thought was on that. And it would encourage you to... Uh, basically participate in the community to, in, to and keep your land values up or your house value up. Right. Uh, that's smart. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the, the guy who started, it's kind of an interesting dude. He was, he's sort of an ex hippie, but also uh, an architect and, and into permaculture design and that kind of stuff. And, um, but also recognize that you did need these kind of other incentives. I mean, the house, I don't, I don't know what they sold for in the, uh, in the seventies, and I'm sure because of inflation and stuff like that, they're different, but it says here, like on, uh, on neighborhoods.com, it says that the current average price of a house in that neighborhood right now is, is, uh, $910,000, but that's California. And, yeah. That's California. <laughs> yeah. California. And it's also in Davis, which is actually is pretty expensive. It's not as expensive as like the Bay area, but it's not unheard of for people to live in Davis and drive to San Francisco for work, uh, or to Silicon Valley area or something like that. I mean, that's not unusual. Yeah. I even had people living up by where we lived up in the foothills that drove to San Francisco and like, it's like three and a half hours away. And they I do think it's also, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. I just say, I do think it's also cool. Like the, how they have like a whole permaculture culture there, right? How it's uh, like kind of like almost a self-sufficient uh, uh, that that's, that's really interesting to me. Although, as you said earlier, it might not, uh, there's always the uh, question of, well, you know, how many people are going to be into that as other as you are or I am, right? So that's that's right. always something to consider. Yeah. Well, it's, they, they they talk about it a little bit in Jeff Lawton's thing, um, and I, I think there's actually a longer video about it. Uh, and uh, they they say there is actually a lot of people just buy the house because they like the area, and they mm-hmm. they're not they're not really interested in the permaculture design or the fruit trees or anything like that. They just it's just nice. I mean, yeah. it's it's the Central Valley. The Central Valley is very dry, and uh, and and also it's. Um, I mean, it's it's cookie cutter home after cookie cutter home. It's just these huge swaths of subdevelopments that all look the same. And this is something that's a little bit different. So people are willing to pay a premium to live there. But it does also attract people who are interested in more of a sustainable lifestyle. And the guy says in the documentary, he says, you know, based on the, what the fruit trees and our vegetable gardens and things like that produce, we could supply roughly 80% of our food uh, if we just ate that. Plus the chickens that a lot of people raise in their little square area. Uh, that's probably another 5% of the food that they need. And then the rest would have to come from somewhere else. So maybe this kind of plays into one of my later questions, but uh, that to me is very attractive when people are starting to go, especially in these kind of post COVID times or whatever, where people are starting to go like, well, maybe I can't rely on 
the lifestyle that I have been relying on. Right. So this is kind of going back to uh, how many people have reached out to me and talked to me about this uh, since uh, I kind of started thinking about this idea. And I don't know if I mentioned to it to him or if he just thought I was somebody who'd be interested in this, but you know, Robbie the fire messaged me and had me on his show uh, a couple months ago to talk about Childerberg Town, basically. And it was basically, he was trying to pitch to me the same idea. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. And I was like, well, but I, this is already an idea that I'm working on. <laughs> I, and I didn't, I didn't realize he didn't know that I, this is already an idea that I'm, that I, has been forming that I'm trying to get some sort of concrete moves on. And so it does, it just shows me that people from, you know, a, a New Yorker, lifelong New Yorker is starting to go like, maybe people shouldn't live here. Right. Um, or we at least need to plan differently. So, uh, from sort of on, I guess maybe on that standpoint is, do you guys see this maybe as a wider trend and that this is sort of a striking while the iron is hot kind of thing is, is to get something like this going so that we can sort of hand out these plans to people and say, this is what worked for us. This might work for you. Uh, and right now is probably the decline of the American city or maybe it is, maybe it's not, I don't know. Uh, and people are trying to get out. I mean, you've, We've seen this in San Francisco, for example, that there was a, a 31% decrease in rents in uh, since uh, the COVID lockdowns. Yeah. And now a lot of that's, I mean, a lot of the increase was artificial, but a lot of that's also artificial because nobody can do anything there. So everybody's like, well, if I can't do anything, why would yeah. I stay in the city that's full of you know homeless people and crap everywhere? Right. Uh, and did, so- didn't they try to institute a tax on, on people leaving, like even after like 10 years after they left in California? I, I thought they yeah. were doing something like that. that that's, that's yeah. Newsom's a, a has um it's it's on wealth it's on the their it's it's part of their wealth tax proposal right. so uh so like people like Joe Rogan who moved here to Texas uh <laughs> they would want to tax his wealth for ten years because they're saying well you made the money here <laughs> and so uh we're gonna tax your assets but like you'd have to have reciprocal agreements with all sorts of right. states and stuff like that Texas I don't think would honor it yeah um no yeah. But there's there's another thing I covered this on on actually the the stream that I'll put this on the California in exile. Mm-hmm. They're also uh, so Prop 13 in California has been like one of the only saving graces of that state for since the 70s is that uh, property tax all property tax is capped at one percent of value uh, established in 1970 and increased by inflation every year. So you can't tax more than that unless the property is transferred or certain types of changes are made to the property. Um, so they're trying in Prop 15, I believe it is, to repeal a lot of that and make all commercial property taxable at a higher rate based on the fair market value currently rather than the established value plus uh, 2%, the, the 1976 value plus 2%. And this would be an astronomical tax increase on commercial property. And one thing that that well, the Farmers Union is saying, and we'll see, we'll see if this is actually true or not, they're opposed to it because... Apparently, this also classifies a lot of improvements to farmland as commercial property, which would also increase that to the fair market value and at a higher percentage. So um, so that's another thing that's going on with California, why a lot of people are leaving yeah. is they're just like, we just can't afford it. I mean, I know I know so many people from where I lived who just moved into Nevada because like Nevada is just, it's they can they still get a lot of the benefits of living near California. Mm-hmm but not the taxes that California is opposing. I mean, the top marginal rate I think in California right now is 16.9%. Plus they're going to add another three, I think three and a half percent on the wealth tax. Plus there's uh, I think it's a dollar, dollar 20 per gallon on gas. And 
there's a bunch of other stuff too. Property tax now is going up and all that kind of stuff. So yeah. Um, but you know, with that, all, all that in mind, trying to <laughs> refocus this, uh, cause I will go off on, on yeah. things for, uh, hours and hours and hours, but, um, and I may totally be getting those percentages wrong, but the, the fact of the matter is taxes in a lot of places are going up. People are kind of hemorrhaging out of the cities. And we see this with, uh, New York has lost roughly a hundred thousand. New York city has lost rough, roughly a hundred thousand residents, whether that's permanent or not. We'll see. Um, a lot of people are just leaving the state permanently or, uh, saying they are at least. Uh, so we may see kind of New York going back to a decreasing population, like in the seventies with the high crime and all that sort of stuff. Uh, with all that happening, what do you guys think the, uh, the demand would be for a, basically a cookie cutter model where you could kind of set these up. Do you think people would be inclined to use these, even if they were not philosophically aligned with us, but that we had a, a system that worked, we showed that it worked over X number of years and, and maybe they would tweak it. Maybe they're, maybe they're anar- anarcho-syndicalists or something like that. Mm-hmm. So they would, they would move into their own society. That's roughly based off the same thing, but more right. along a mutual aid type of yep. system. Yes. I think it would work. Yeah. Think I think work? absolutely. Well, I mean, yep. templates for houses sell, right? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I think whatever with everything going on, people would be much rep- would be receptive to any to suggestions of they feel that this the current system is broken. To use be cliche about it, the current system is broken. All right, let's see if we can come up with something new, and we can say, hey, why don't you take a look at this and see if this you know meets your fancy? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you could market it as like a we're just trying to restructure our lifestyles as opposed to being like we're anarchists. Right. So a lot of these people are gonna come in and say, like, hey, like this is this is a way to increase redundancy and to have tight knit communities with uh social support and we can avoid these, you know, these problems that we had ten years ago. Right. Yeah. Well, I think that makes a lot of sense. Another thing that I've been uh, reading about and kind of looking into is um, like common space design sort of. So one thing that this is what reminded me of it is because I think this this sort of selling would work for some people who are not necessarily philosophically aligned with us is that one of the reasons why when they do like hormone studies and eye tracking studies on Americans versus certain Euro- certain European communities, in particular Copenhagen is one that they reference a lot is that uh, people in cities like Copenhagen have lower cortisol levels, and when uh, you do eye tracking movements, their eyes are uh, track in such a way that is more conducive to encouraging people to walk because of what they're looking at is the. I don't really know how they do the eye tracking studies exactly, but it's basically it's showing that people in pleasing areas, communities that are uh, architecturally beautiful and also planted with. Uh, pleasing plants, uh, fruit trees and flowers and that sort of stuff. And that it's upkept. It encourages people to walk more. And you see that now granted a lot of, there's probably a lot of factors that go into this, but you see through hormone studies that they have much lower levels of cortisol than most Americans. And cortisol is one of the hormones that uh, makes you store fat. And uh, people in Europe also walk a lot more and it, and they say that this is because of uh, the design of the communities that they're more walkable. You see this in West England a lot too, where they have these kind of small villages where houses are clustered kind of more along the lines of the subdivision model, but people do have their own land that they go out to. And this is my wife grew up a a little bit like this in uh, Ukraine where people do live in the city, but then they have like farm that they go out to that they, that they work. 
and that's where they get fresh vegetables and stuff like that from. Uh, but these kind of more walkable situations where as, as kind of a selling point, especially if, if this is what ends up happening with like Childeberg town is if it is, if it is designed in a way with keeping in mind that you want people to be encouraged to form relationships with other people and build a community and walk around and be healthy and that sort of stuff. That's, I mean, that's maybe that's a little or like not Orwellian, but more like big brothery a little bit like, Oh, let's design things in such a way that will make people exercise or whatever. But, uh, it's also just pleasing. Right. Yeah. I'm trying uh, to think of a way to phrase that so it doesn't seem Orwellian. Yeah, yeah, because it's like, because it's more you like, must walk. <laughs> like, that's kind of like right. a weird thing. Well, because you're not really, what you're doing is you're designing a place that is, it's like the opposite that people actually design. want to be in. Yeah. yeah. So, like, in big cities, they do hostile design to try to keep homeless away mm-hmm. from certain areas. It's pretty much just the opposite of that, but using the same mm-hmm. kind of ideas. Right, yeah. Guess, and, and pleasure go, go. design, I guess, would be a good way to call yeah, it. Yeah, maybe, yeah, pleasure design. Because I know that one of the things that, that a lot of the um, uh, psych, architectural psychologists, I guess they are, it, talk about is that one of the things that uh, stresses people out, particularly in American cities with a lot of modern design, is uh, apparently through hormone studies and eye tracking studies, humans really don't like parallel straight lines, which... I don't, I'm not really sure exactly how they determine that, but they say like, if, if like the structures are interesting, people like brutalist architecture sometimes, but um, they do give you a, a hostile feeling and, mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, and they do elevate cortisol levels. And the, the one uh, architectural psychologist that I was, I was reading her hypothesis is that a lot of that brutalist architecture was designed by uh, men who had fought in world war one. And, those were very traumatic experiences and people who uh, have PTSD a lot of times try to recreate their trauma. And so when they were designing buildings, they designed them in a lot of ways to mimic their experience in the war. And uh, it's interesting. She, in her book, she has like parallel pictures where she'll show like a pillbox from world war one. And then like a house designed by a guy who's in that pillbox. And it's crazy how similar a lot of these things are. But she was saying too, like if you go look at stuff that was before, that was designed before a lot of these great wars, when uh, most of the people doing a lot of the design were not warriors, they didn't fight in these wars because the wars wars weren't as extreme and widespread. Uh, there's a lot more curbs, a lot more uh, forms that mimic uh, feminine qualities in nature and things like that. And those, based on hormone studies and eye tracking studies, encourage people to live a healthier lifestyle, uh, just because. You, do you really want to walk your child in, in, you know, your bassinet or whatever it's called, the, the stroller? Do you want to walk them past like a brutalist structure right. or like, or a giant glass corporate building? Or do you want to walk them past, you know, uh, you know, through a garden, uh, like a, a park with winding roads and fruit trees and flowers and that sort of stuff is that people are encouraged to walk their children through those types or just walk themselves through those types of things. And, um, this is why you get in places like West England walking culture where there isn't really any tall buildings like that. Everything is very uh, old village design. What, what? Actually, we have a channel on here. I think about it. What is it called? Cottage core? Cottage core. Yeah. 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 That's right there. I think, yeah, there's a channel about this is that that cottage core design, mm-hmm. um, it, it encourages people to walk and uh, which is, you know, sort of another kind of roundabout, thing that I would like to encourage for Childerburgers and Childerburg town people is like a healthy lifestyle is a happy lifestyle. And, uh, and one way to be free as well is like, if you are constrained by your own physical maladies or whatever, um, 
it, it would be nice if the community that you lived in encouraged you to go out and take walks. And, you know, and a lot of this comes from just me being a kid and growing up where I grew up is I really liked walking around the neighborhood and waving to everybody because I knew them. Like that was right. great. Or like going down to the local grocery store and every single time we went, my grandpa would know somebody and we'd stop and talk to them for 20 minutes. And um, I also had this this sort of same experience. I go to a, a Bible camp up in Washington state that is sort of set up in uh, sort of a village structure. It's, it's little clusters of cabins up in the top part of it. And then you walk down to the craft shop and to like the game room and the lodge and all those types of things. And along the way, you just run into people because it's a fairly large camp that you haven't seen in a year or whatever, but you just stop and talk and it's, and it's good. And, and, and you, and it's just a nice place to walk as well. So people are just, Oh, let's, you know, it's after lunch. Let's just go for a walk for a right. while. Like that kind of stuff. That's, I don't know if that's really, I have a note on that in my things and it's just basically how do we encourage people to be healthier? Uh, I don't, I don't know if that's really the topic I want, but does anybody else have any kind of thoughts on that? I, I really like that. Uh, actually, uh, and that was actually something I, I was thinking of earlier is that uh, well, this is kind of an odd, uh, side point, but um, I, I really think most problems like in society in general do have to do with the, the difference between like a high trust versus low trust society, right? Yeah. Or a town, right? It's like, if you're not in a high trust society, you're much less likely just to even go out and walk, right? You, you don't know the place people, you know, you don't know your neighbors or whatever, or maybe you're dissuaded from knowing your neighbors in some cases, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, but in a high trust society, you feel much safer and much more likely just to roam the streets, right? And or at any point in the day, you know what I mean? So it, it's, right. yeah. Uh, yeah, I really, really like that concept. Uh, I, I think, and going back to the, like the main point uh, you brought up before is that I do think that is, with people leaving the cities, I really do think that it would be enticing to, for people to see, oh, look. And we could, of course, like couch in more of like not a political way, but in like a cultural way. Look, we can just live our lifestyle how we want. You know, you can kind of you can live here and have this lifestyle. We can live here and have this lifestyle and then we can all, you know, live the way we want. And I think that's appealing to a lot of people, especially if you don't like uh, couch it in like buzzwords with or like political like triggers for people. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, that could. Yeah. All well, I can picture is a Childerberg Town shirt with a picture of the Shire on it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it's, yeah, yeah, it's designed. Uh, I think West England was uh, part of the inspiration for the Shire, uh, and uh, I'm trying to remember. CeeLo actually has a really interesting uh, mission statement. Um, yeah, so their 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 community agreement is uh, to provide an opportunity for members to enjoy a life that includes personal expression, neighborly friendship, and cooperation, and appreciate uh, appreciative care of the natural environment, which is I think is a nice. Uh, mission statement for them. Um, and I think one of their early ones, one of their early statements was, uh, before they expanded on it was, I, can, I don't see it here on their, on their Wikipedia page, but, uh, was that, that CeeLo is a community for people who wish to live in harmony. So, uh, that sort of thing where that is kind of a little Quakery and a little like peacenicky sounding, but, uh, I think most people do just kind of like, sort of what you were saying is that people just want to, they just want to live and be, and they want to be happy. Like they, you know, I think most people want that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I think that is a lot of, a lot of problems are from, you know, and, and we, I live here, like we just bought our house a, a couple of months ago here in uh, Arlington. And I made the point to go out and talk to my neighbors. And I've only talked since the first time I talked to them, mm -hmm. I've only talked to the one <laughs> side yeah. neighbor because my, uh, 
the the guy who uh, cleans our pool out uh, was uh, cleaning the filters and he backwashed it and there was a hole in the pipe that goes out to the front drain and it spilled onto his property. And he was like, hey, you spilled onto my property. That was the only time this guy ever talked to me. And I was like, <laughs> I was like oh, oh, I'm so, so sorry, I'll clean it up or whatever. And I was like, this is, I don't know why it wasn't like when I was a kid when like people just talked. I mean, and this is another time, like I was out uh, in uh, Marfa, which is way out in uh, West Texas or Southwest Texas. And I was planting a vineyard with my friend Ricky and um, his neighbor just drove his truck down. I, I I got there. There was nobody there yet. And this guy drove his truck down. He's like, Hey, what are you doing here? I was like, Oh, I'm helping Ricky plant this vineyard. And he and I just talked for like 30 minutes. He's just a nice guy living out there. But also it makes Ricky's property safer that this guy saw me pull up. Nobody was at Ricky's property. And this guy took it upon himself to drive down and see who this guy is. That's like snooping around his property. You know, and that would kind of our Childeberg town community too. If if you have a tight knit community, you can quickly recognize. It doesn't mean you have to be mean to them, but you can quickly recognize when somebody is out of place, uh, and and that increases safety a great deal. Um, and and yep. you know, our my neighborhood, I like it a lot, and I think it is a safe neighborhood. But um, you know, I only talk to Joan Rivers down the street and like once in a while I have another neighbor who walks and uh, walks her dogs the same time I walk my dogs usually. And we see each other and talk for a minute usually, but everybody else who I've tried to have conversations with and stuff, for some reason, they're just like, why is this weirdo talking to me? And they go back in their house. (laughs) (laughs) But like, I I would like to live in a community that's not like that. I would like to live where, you know, even if you don't have the time, that's fine, but at least wave and say, Hey, how are you doing? That kind of thing. I mean, I live in tech are people friendlier. Yeah, I am very much like um, a romantic when I think of this type of stuff. I really would like to like live in that type of community where you kind of like knew everyone and like just what you know, just knew everyone and talked to people all the time, right? Type of thing. So yeah, I'm definitely on board with that. Well, I wonder. This is also kind of going. This is going back to some other things in my notes. Is so in doing a lot of research on this, it seems like most of the of these intentional communities that succeed uh, don't exceed about a hundred people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm wondering if that is because of this community aspect to it, or if this is more of um, it's just harder to to manage people cooperatively when it gets too much bigger than a hundred. Uh, like I said, I think Silo's population they have a, they have a hundred adults, I think, and about forty or forty five kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's not it's not huge, but um, they also don't have a lot of turnover. People don't really leave or move in very often. Right. What uh, one interesting point about that? Um, if I can just jump in for a second, is um, yeah. there was some I, I forget what it was. But I think there's a, been some psychological studies that uh, the human mind caps out, like as far as like um, intimate relationships, the human mind can only store around, like keep around 100 to 150 people, uh, like that someone can really empathize with at a time before it starts to kind of like uh, break down and lose like emotional connections with people. So that's very interesting that that also correlates. Yeah, yeah I mean see that recently. Yeah, yeah, I've heard something like that too. Like, I I know Village Homes is a little bit bigger than that. I think it's about two hundred people. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But uh, it also has a slightly different structure. But there's also uh, another permaculture community in Montana that's I can't remember the name of it. It's a dictatorship, though. That's how they organized it. The guy mm-hmm. who <laughs> the guy who started it is uh, started it and basically was just like, I'm in charge, and you know, take it or leave it. And some, <laughs> and some people took it and that, I think that one's like 30 or 40 people, but they've been around for 10 or 15 years and doing pretty well. There's a couple in, um, there's a couple of different types of communities that are near CELO in North Carolina. And, um, 
some are kind of more commie or whatever, but even the ones that are like long-term sort of co-ops where like people are probably more along the syndicalist or mutualist societies, even those kind of cap out a little bit at like, and I think that it might be what you guys were talking about, sort of the psychological, uh, the psychological threshold of being able to keep track of who's contributing and who's not maybe. Yeah. And uh, so like when you live in a sort of a commie, a, a small commie village or whatever, who, who could take whatever model we come up with and amalgamate. I'm more than happy for commies to use it. Oh, yeah. I, you know, sure. but, Absolutely. Um, but that sort of, if you, if it is only a hundred people, you can, it's pretty easy to go, well, you know, Fred's not really pulling his weight. I think we should maybe give him, or, or I mean, isn't that what happened to Bernie Sanders? Like, yeah, you got kicked out of a commune for not working. Yeah. Right. Just I don't want to talk about politics too much. <laughs> yes, I, I think that would be kind of that sort of that would sort of be along those lines where it's kind of like uh if if the if the commune was, you know, a hundred thousand people, well nobody would really care what Bernie Sanders was doing because nobody not enough people right. would realize it or nobody could make a big enough sink, but if it's a yeah. hundred so I'm wondering on that note is if that should be so CeeLo built this into their charter that there was a maximum number of plots available. Uh, so, and you couldn't subdivide the plots. I think the, I think the minimum plot size was two acres and, um, and then they divided up and, and I don't, I don't know exactly how they organized it, but like in my mind, it would be, if you have, if you have like a little town hub, you'd have smaller plots closer to the town and then larger plots out. But I would also want to allow people to have the freedom to kind of expand their plots and, yeah. Do, do it however they want to do it because you know it's i don't want it to be a planned community i want it to be an intentional community right um and but that sort of idea is maybe you max you max out at a certain number of plots and that sort of keeps the size small enough and then if if you do have and and Celo's actually experienced this is there there's been enough people interested in this that they just buy land and set nearby uh and i think actually agora you might have been talking about this or maybe it was uas earlier where it's just like you do have sort of a ripple effect out on the rest of the community and people are interested. So they kind of set up nearby and we could just go, okay, well, you know, this, this little plot here is maxed out, but we do have people who are interested in moving to the area, you know, 20 miles down the road, we could just buy a new one and just sort of set up the same model and just try mm-hmm. to fill that out too. And, uh, and get together and trade and that kind of stuff. What right. do you, what do you it, it kind of creates like this natural growth, right? It, where it's not, it, it, it kind of like sorts itself out in like a natural order type of way. It, yeah. I'm yeah. picturing it like the earth's atmosphere where it's, it's denser towards the center and then it gets, you know, less and less dense as you go out. So uh, as it gets less dense, like these people who are, you know, maybe they might be hardcore Childerberg people, but they live, you know, a little bit more suburban into whatever town you're next to. And they, you know, maybe they do a lot of business with the Childerbergers, but they also, you know, work in town and go to, go to the bar in town or whatever, you know, it, I, I think there's gotta be a way to sort of figure out that where that line needs to be that, you know, maybe the, the core group is far enough away that we don't have, you know, uh, say Karen across the street going, Hey, what are these guys doing? That's not what you do in a normal town, but you know, what we've also got all of these amenities close by and people close by who want to come and access our community. Yeah. I, I think that's a good point is, is, and also trying to create it that there are things there that they do want to access. So, and I think that'll kind of come naturally is that, um, you know, whatever functions as the main street in Childerberg town or whatever, probably will have 
some things that are attractive, you know, but we won't have, especially not at first, there probably won't be like 10 restaurants or something like that, but you know, maybe a bar or a restaurant or, or other activities that people can come up for the day and do or hiking, that kind of stuff that, that attracts people to the area. Yep. The cap would be, would make the most sense as like trying to manage people, make sure like everyone's doing their own, you know, pulling their own weight, whatever weight that may be. And, you know, to build on Ace and Agora's point that, yeah, basically, when that community is established and starts getting going, it starts influencing others to essentially spread out, spread out to make similar communities or maybe they want to do a community with a little tweaking of the original rules, but not everyone's clustered together. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And um, uh, especially... especially uh, no, good. Sorry. Oh, you're... I was, I was going to ask... Uh, Cold Highway. What was that first thing that you were saying? I had a thought and I lost it right when you got to the end of your. That um, when when the community is already is established and it's gotten going, it's been there for a few years. You've got the core community built, and we have the cap of like again, we'll just say for a hundred a hundred proper hundred units. Oh, I remember what it was. Okay, I was gonna say um, so if you want to think of a, a people cap. That could be, you know, what the corporation manages if you wanted to use that model, but you still have, um, you know, the the people that you're not managing that are also participating. Yeah, that, that makes sense. sense. Like, I think that's a way that you could do it. Yeah, that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, that does make sense because people could, you know, especially if uh, the idea of leasing the land is not appealing to somebody, but they still kind of want to be part of it, mm-hmm. then. Uh, they could just buy nearby, just buy. Yeah, nearby or if it's a, a, you know, it's a, it's like a family that you're friends with, and they want to settle down nearby and, and participate in everything, but they don't, like you said, they don't want to uh, lease it, or they don't want to, uh, you know, consider themselves like a, a part of the community in that way. Then that's totally fine, and they're still interacting and economics and all that. Yeah, and you could you could probably set this up too. Is that like? Uh the people who are members, there are some perks or whatever that they have access to that mm-hmm. uh, people who are not members don't. I mean, like, you know, public pool kind of thing, um, mm-hmm. which would, I mean, that would be, uh, that would make sense to me is that like, mm-hmm. you know, for, or, or people who live there, the discount on like hunting permits or what, I don't know what the permits well, like how I don't, like I don't know what the, that situation is, but yeah. Yeah. Or like how planet fitness has different levels of membership. So like, if you get the really high grade one, you get the massage tables in the back. Oh, I didn't know they had that. That's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They've got like tanning beds and massage tables and they've got, I think some of them even have like a, what do they call that? A sensory deprivation thing. So you get in like this tank of water and put a, yeah. like earplugs in and shit. Yeah. I love those. I love those. I, my I've never done it. I don't know if I could. They're really cool. They're like, my wife and I did it a couple of times cause they had a group on when we lived in Virginia and uh, I, I wanted to try it, but we ended up buying the group on, which was like, 10 sessions or something like that. And it took us forever to use all of them, but they're, they're really neat. It's, it's an interesting experience. Uh, but yeah, I yeah. like that. I like that idea is that there's like some sort of, you know, I don't, I don't know what amenities would be offered, but it would be like, you know, I, there's going, there's going to be some sort of public stuff or at least, um, right. you know, I'm feeling like there's a club Childerberg and then there's like non-club members obviously would have like some sort of extra fee. Like if, like I would charge less to you if you're in the club, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. 
club members. And then there's also like a clubhouse and, and, you know, voting rights on whatever thing we're doing, projects and group, you know, group activities. Kind of like it, just the base structure of a company town. Yeah, yeah. basically. Yeah, basically. Where the, those who are in the company get benefits from the company, whatever they may be. And then, you mm-hmm. know, the rest of the village or city around it kind of hinges like on hobby. that. Yeah. Other other option, other ways to look at it would be so you, again you got the, the you got the core community you know they got some basic like restaurants they got a bar or something and like a small uh, convenience store but uh, some other people think they want like they want BJ's or they want a Sam's Club but there's not enough space or the community doesn't want something like that you know the the satellite members I'm gonna to make it easy to explain. They, you know, they go down a couple of miles down the road, right by the land, and they set up, you know, the Sam's Club or BJ's there with the same structure as the core community's got. But the core community doesn't, you know, will get the benefit if they choose to use to use a, a, a warehouse type store, but they don't have to have it. It's not in, in their eyes. It's not the eyesore that a lot of people sometimes view them as. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and the Sam's Club wouldn't have to be like a subsidiary of Childerberg. It would just be, oh, we went and put a Sam's Club in over here, and we're right. still here doing a Childerberg thing, but we all get to enjoy whatever, you know, exactly. is in both areas. Yeah. That makes so sense. If, we, if you put the community like a half hour to an hour away from the nearest town, so all right, so mm-hmm. now you're, now everyone's getting the benefit, theoretically, of, you know, they don't have to travel as far. They get to save on gas. Yeah. Yep. Then it's crazy because if, if it wasn't, such a thing for uh you know northern new mexico southern colorado which i really like the idea of too especially just with the mountains being nearby and the variance of uh, temperatures and things like that yeah i have a town 30 minutes away that fits that description exactly and it's got the older community that you're talking about right like i i'm so mad because i live right next to this place but i'm like i don't think i can (laughs) convince anyone to move to the middle of nowhere kansas like yeah (laughs) but it's it's exactly that (laughs) Well, I mean, I, I would be perfectly happy to uh, move to the middle of nowhere, Kansas. Uh, the, I mean, the reason I, I, we picked northern New Mexico, southern Colorado is just because we like it. Um, yeah, right. That was just sort of that was our thinking. It's just it's pretty, and and I'll, yeah, also, is. also my hidden my hidden uh, agenda is it's close enough to where we're from in California that I think that as my family leaves California, I can maybe convince them to live near me. <laughs> that, uh-huh, that's my, sure. that's oh, my nice. yeah. Yeah, yep. that's that's my uh, hidden my hidden agenda. I don't know if I can or not, but uh, I, yeah, I, 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 like, I I like those states. I I like that whole area. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it's very pretty out there. It's only you know it's only ten hour drive from Dallas. It's it's not that far. Um, well, from where we live in Dallas, which is like halfway to Fort Worth. But um, yeah, we we drove out there a couple in June, I guess, uh, end of June. And went up to Angel Fire, and 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 went down to Taos, and uh, decided that Taos was not where we wanted to be. But only mm-hmm. 30, 30 minutes away from Taos is uh, Angel Fire, which doesn't really have any of the like big box stores or anything that you guys were talking about. But Taos is like thirty minutes away, mm-hmm. and it does have all that stuff, and um, and so that kind of was attractive to us, which was this is has that sort of alpine mountain feel. It is a a big area for hunting. If the land that was purchased had meadows, uh, you can also uh, the the um, cattle ranchers on the mesa have uh, uh, thoroughfare rights on the freeway, so or the highway. And um, I guess the freeway and highway is different. I always just say freeway, but um, 
they, uh, I guess, I guess freeways don't have crossroads, but highways do. I don't know. Anyways, uh, they're allowed to drive their cattle up the mountain and people up the mountain who own property will lease their meadows to cattle ranchers per season to fatten the cows uh, when the mesa is dry. Because the mesa has two seasons. So there's like a wet season in spring and a wet season in fall. And in both seasons, grass will grow. And um, so they can fatten their cows down on the mesa during those seasons. But during the summer, when the mesa is very dry, they have to drive their cattle up somewhere else where there's, or they have to bring in food to to feed them. So they usually, they'll run them up the hill into the mountains where it's still green. Um, And then there's also uh, elk breeding is up there. So a lot of elk hunters like going up there and hunting, which is another revenue stream. Uh, Most of the land comes with, uh, I think it is all managed by the government, but the most of the land comes with a significant number of tags uh, to hunt elk because they're a high population. They don't really care that much. Um, You can always, yeah, and you you can always hunt pig out there because they're invasive. Um, So uh, I think a lot of opportunities to have hunters also really great trout fishing. So, you know, there's opportunity there to, to rent out, you know, camping platforms and cabins to people going yeah. out to, to, to do that as well. And it's close enough to population centers where uh, if you have the campsites available, you can rent it out to a church or to some sort of community organization to, to bring their family up or run a children's camp to, you know, teach uh, survival type skills. Uh, and I think that would be appealing to a lot of place people in those mm-hmm. types of areas and a Absolutely. good source. Yeah. Great source of revenue. And um, so that's kind of, that's sort of where we're leaning toward is like trying to figure out something in that general area uh, that's affordable mm-hmm. that, that, you know, what we can either raise the money for, or that my wife and I can afford ourselves and then start subdividing off of that and setting up the, Right now, this kind of CELO model is is what's in our mind, and that that was uh, my favorite personally of the night, like the uh, like the corporate trust model kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and there's a couple of other examples of that, and um, there's also something that I'm re- starting to read about uh, called uh, dynamic contracts. So they are contracts that are set up to change depending on certain situations. Um, for both parties. So you could, you could also do it where the dynamic contract is like, if you, if you agree to, let's say, I, I don't know what the prices per plot would be. Let's say that the plot is $10,000 or whatever, and you buy a two acre plot for $10,000 and you agree to pay, you know, a thousand dollars a year over the next 10 years, but then something changes, you lose your job or whatever that can, that can trigger a change to the contract where you uh, get, you know, a buffer a year and it extends or something like, you know, there's a lot of really okay. interesting there's like a really a lot of really interesting legal stuff that people have already thought about. And that's what I, I find very encouraging about this is that there are already other people who are thinking about different things to do like this. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and it does seem like, I don't know if, if it's because, you know how like if you buy uh, like a blue Ford, you start seeing that same blue Ford all over the place. Right, right. So, mm-hmm. so it might be like that same thing where it's like, I decided I want to do this. And then I start seeing that, oh, a lot of other people are interested in doing this too. Right. Uh, but they may have been interested previously, and I just didn't know about it. So um, I, I don't really have very many more notes. We actually got through all of the stuff that I uh, filled out early. Do you guys want to go back to any topics or do you have any questions or want to add anything or something I can write down? Because I'd like to do this maybe once a month. It helps me kind of stay on track if I have something that I have to bring information to. It helps me kind of stay on track. So I'd like to just kind of have this as a standing once a month thing. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, I can write down some stuff to look into. Like I was going to look into that super fund idea just because I think that's interesting, whether or not it's a good idea or a bad idea, given what uh, Colt Highway was saying about uh, all of the potential problems with it. But uh, it, it is just kind of an interesting idea. And uh, I will probably be doing a lot more research into the legal structure of CELO, a lot more research into uh, how Village Homes is set up because they're similar but different. And um, other communities that are set up in a similar way to CELO as well. Uh, anybody else want me to add anything to my notes to to talk about next time, or does anybody have any topics they want to talk about this time? Um, as far as the whole um, in that whole Superfund vein, uh, there's also the option of just buying towns. I know that that is an option, and I I looked at a couple. I'm I'm going to look into it a little bit more. The ones that like when you just do a quick Google search are usually shitholes. Well, yeah, but... they're usually ghost towns that are, they're just extreme fixer uppers. Usually, yeah, um, yeah. Every once in a while, you can find a living town that's for sale. Okay, I'll, I'll add that. Uh, living towns for sale. And I'll also look into like the legal stuff that goes around that because especially, I, we, we touched on this earlier, is uh, having a town charter does offer certain legal protections yeah. uh, from uh, annexation by a municipality nearby or annexation by the county. Uh, and those are both, uh, I know like a, a, good, a good example of this is, um, although in Virginia, cities are allowed to annex counties but um in virginia virginia beach is a city and it exists because people were leaving norfolk and moving into princess Anne county because the demographic of norfolk was not what a lot of the people at the time preferred it was a black more black city and a lot of the white people were leaving so this was the classic case of white flight uh norfolk the city was going to annex princess Anne county and before they could annex princess Anne county the white residents of then Princess Anne County went to Virginia Beach, which was like three buildings, and said, you annex us first and we'll agree to it. And because there, there's a size requirement. So if, if your city is smaller than a certain size, uh, you, can, you can annex with agreement. If it's larger than a certain size, you, you can annex without agreement. Mm-hmm. And yeah. um, so, but in different states, the rules are set up differently. There's also another thing that I wanted to look into. Uh, there's a, there is a city or a town that has um, three residents in uh, Oregon called Greenhorn. And this is a unique town because it has a federal charter. It's the only town in the United States with a federal charter. I think it was granted by Grover Cleveland. Um, I think, I think that's right. Grover Cleveland, but it is a interesting town. It it has uh, no permanent residents, but three uh, temporary residents that, that move through. It's, it's a hunting town right now, but it used to be a mining town. Um, okay. But it, but it has a federal charter, so that might be something that and, – and they are offered certain protections be, from the state and county and nearby cities because they have a federal charter. So uh, I don't know what would be – it's the only one, so my guess is they don't grant federal charters very often. Hmm. But that might be something that's kind of interesting to yeah. look into. I know I, The only reason I know about this town is because there was a big flood uh, in like the 1800s, and their jail washed down the, the mountain to the town below. And then that town just like took the jail and made it their jail. And, <laughs> and so there's this like, there's this like 50 or 60 year lawsuit between the two towns trying to, trying to get the jail back. That's funny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, it is. It, it's, it's, a, I think at this point it's kind of a novelty that they do this, but it's, uh, but they, uh, yeah, it's just like the jail just washed down the hill and they are, they're like, well, I guess we're going to use this now. <laughs> there's also, um, sent, sent, this Centralia, Pennsylvania. Now, um, based on the Wikipedia, basically the, the town had has a currently 
burning coal fire from 1962. Okay. And the, the remaining re- residents, I think it's like less than 20. Basically, the town has basically no longer exists. The zip code has been was rescinded by the post office in 02. But the remaining the remaining people basically reached an agreement with the PA government that they that they will live the rest of their lives out there, and then afterwards, houses are going to be taken via eminent domain under oh. Pennsylvania law. Wait, isn't this that town that had that highway nearby that people would like spray paint? Yep, that's yeah. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, okay, I do remember this, because I think, didn't they recently bury that highway because they didn't want people to go catch COVID on it? They, they blocked that, I guess. When I'm looking at the pictures right now on, on Wikipedia, it's, they just, it looks like they just have, like, a hill. Where oh, okay. The road. So they, they basically just put up a big, big-ass speed bump. <laughs> okay, that's interesting. Yeah, that would be actually kind of interesting one to look into, too, because I wonder if there's... Uh, something similar out in the places where I'm looking, but also like I am perfectly happy with uh, sharing information with and helping other people who are interested in trying to do this simultaneously even uh, so that we can kind of share information. Um, so if like, I mean, you, you said you were in New York, if you, if you're ever interested in setting something like this up in upstate um, or, or wherever, I don't know what part of New York you're in, uh, then that might be a, a good, a good, uh, exchange of information or at least if we get ours going then we'll have kind of a model that you can use to try to sell to liberty oriented people in the same area I mean, there's a ton of libertarians who i mean i love actually upstate new york it's very pretty but um i know there's a lot of people who just can't stand the state i wonder if there's some way that we can model this in such a way where it can get around some of those laws that kind of make people want to leave and kind of what i'm thinking is that a lot of this is uh you know, I would love to live in California again. I cannot live uh, under that government, but uh, you know, I, I, it's intolerable. But um, I mean, it, I it wonder would... how much. I wonder how much this idea of dealing with the state you live in can really just come down to like community rule, corporation rule, that snitches get stitches. All disputes are handled in house, right? Like, I I don't understand why that's. Because unless we're you know doing really weird stuff and and making a, a nuisance of ourselves, we're not. It's not like we're going to have the feds marching in, right? Yeah, that's well uh, theoretically. I mean, there there is there was. A, do you guys remember? I mean, this is a long time ago, and I probably the only reason I remember this is a because I'm old, and also because I was a weird kid and paid attention to this stuff. But uh, <laughs> do you guys remember that that uh, Y2K settlement that they set up in like Idaho, I think, or maybe it was maybe it was uh, Eastern Washington. And um, it was this like weird Y2K compound. It was an intentional community. It worked really, really well until the year 2000. And then they went, oh, never mind. This wasn't a big deal. And then it kind of fizzled out. I know what you're talking about. I don't remember the name. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't remember the name either. But I do remember that like years later, they when like some of the documents were like starting to be declassified, apparently they were under like hardcore surveillance by the ATF and uh, some sort of other federal bodies because – they were worried that this would turn into like uh, maybe like a like a large scale Ruby Ridge kind of compound. Yeah, and, and so and now, granted, like this is all kind of internet rumor stuff because I don't know actually the facts for it. That might be actually something to look into. Maybe I'll write that in my notes because that would be kind of an interesting one to look into. Y two K. I'm going to call it Y two K cult because I'll remember what that is. What that's about. Okay. Um, but yeah, I, I wonder. And so actually. I do have one more topic now that I'm reading back through my notes and I put this up at the top and we skipped it. 
Um, sort of to that point, Agora, uh, about staying low-key and under the radar is as this may have to be kind of more like a handshake agreement because you, if you're looking to have the corporate body protect you from the government to some degree, you can't really put it in your contract. Uh, right. But if people who join the community agree to transact in crypto, that's also one way to kind of keep certain things off the radar. So even if we're making money in town, trading with ourselves, and we do have some inflow of other of money coming from other places, but um, that gives you some flexibility of reporting when when the corporation does have to file every year. Uh, if a lot of those transactions are done in cash, in gold, or in crypto, that does kind of cut down on some of that stuff. And I'm wondering if... I'm wondering like what degree of risk does that invite and what degree of risk does that invite and versus what degree of, of like autonomy would that grant? And uh, that was kind of like one of my, and then sort of, I tagged onto this idea. One of the things that I thought would be interesting and I haven't looked into this a lot. Like I am a software developer, but I'm not as familiar with the development of, um, of crypto, but I, uh, Rollo McFlugel gave me a, a book about it that I've, I've only gotten through like, 10 pages of it, but, um, would be, uh, we do s- still do all of this stuff above board and, and on the state level with the assumption that the state won't always be there, but then also put these into crypto contracts, uh, to sort of parallel as a proof of concept that you can run a society parallel to the current society on blockchain. I don't know how interested anybody else is of that. I, I think that's interesting to me, at I, least for a project. I don't know a huge amount about uh, the blockchain personally, but that is very interesting to me. I, I've I've heard of that before. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've never been a big fan of uh, attaching tokens to records and things like that. But I, if there are simple things that we can accomplish with it, like I'm interested for sure. Yeah. It'd be um, like simple my, contract tracking. Yeah, it's just a secondary contract. Yeah, yeah, that, that's kind of what I was yeah. thinking. So it would just basically whatever you're actually. So are you talking filing. about just like like a monetary contingency to whatever you're filing? So like, um, no, I mean like so I think like, lightning. I think the lightning network is starting to introduce this. Is that uh, there is a transaction fee to it, but it's basically you just store records on it. It's just a way to store records separately. Yeah, the thing is like okay. you put your you put your records. Oh well, yeah, like the messaging thing that they're doing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like it, it just doesn't go away as long as people are running the nodes and it's and it's being backed up. So right. you could theoretically always go look this stuff back, look this up. Now, granted, it would be stored at the courthouse, but you know, uh, if you're simultaneously filing both of these and then something happens at the courthouse, as as the uh, as the town trust or whatever, we can always look at what is on the uh, what's actually committed to the chain so like what's committed to the blockchain and see what actually took place because this this happens i mean people run into this all the time with uh with uh like when they're when they're property and they're like my property's three feet into your property and they're like yeah "Yeah, but you Mm -hmm. you know all that kind of bullshit and it's and a lot of times it's just because of bad record keeping um so if you have that sort of a backup a parallel to it where it shows you actually can operate these functions that the the city or this government or county or whatever also maintains. You can operate these all on the blockchain. It's a, it's just a proof of concept. It's more just kind of a pet project idea that I just thought was interesting. Yeah. One of, one because, of, I guess my, what I'm trying to get at is I think if we have an intentional community, I, you know, we can run it 
uh, as far as disputes and, and things like that go, the, anything that might actually involve the state, you run it like a poker game. Like we're, we're all here at the table dealing with it and nobody outside of the table knows what's going on and we settle up and we're done. You know, like we don't, I, to me, it's, it's the, the thing that I'm worried about personally is when you start interacting with communities outside of the intentional community or outside of the core even, um, and you know, if they try to raise a dispute, how, do we keep that from getting to their dispute agent, their government, or do we, because we can use the corporation to jujitsu our way through property taxes, but how do we, how do we get through the um, arbitration settlement between the two entities, the corporation and the government? Yeah, that's, that's, that's actually, that's an interesting point and probably, uh, that's in my in my long list of things to look into because that's what I'm that's actually what I'm most concerned about is uh well there's a couple of things is one is somebody comes on agrees to our agreement is a total asshole and then everybody decides to kick them out and then he sues the corporation for breach of contract you can write in the right contract and now are we private arbitration though yeah. you can right. yeah that's true um and that, and that that would that would be probably one but way that's in all my contracts at work so. Oh, is it? Yeah. Oh, okay. With the protection. Well, but what if he doesn't sue? What if he spreads rumors and then we end up getting Waco'd? I mean, that's the risky run and everything. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, that's true. true. That's true. With, the, with the protection aspect, you know, and and you're, you're, you guys are right. You know, nobody wants to get Waco'd. Nobody wants to get Ruby Ridged. You know, so that's mm-hmm. the key to keep this. You know, is to you know, that's why you know going full separatist. You know, right. right off the bat, right. it's right. not an option because you know ATF you know, the, and every ever alphabet agency, you know, zeroes in on that. I think the smartest so, way is to live in this current situation. Exactly. Uh, separate. Yep. That's yeah. right. I, I'm so it's better to be in the crowd and do your own thing while yeah. it's not drawing attention. Right. So, yep. you know, being the, having the spotlight right yeah. on dead center. And now, in the area, sure. Yeah. For the, also, this, is okay. the, this is the hypothetical that I'm going on, right? Okay, so Agora Brewing, I brew some booze, I sell to my buddies, everybody's cool, nothing matters. This booze gains a little uh, popularity, and it makes it into the outside community. Somebody in the outside community goes, wait a minute, is this legal? And then the next thing you know, I've got... You know, because here, here's my problem. I don't want to, if I move into an intentional community, I set up a seller, I get apiaries going, and I'm producing. To sell to the wider community, which is where most of the money is going to be, I'm still getting an alcohol license. I'm still getting distribution contracts. I'm still, like, to me, it, it almost seems like the the counter-economic thing that I'm trying to achieve won't happen because in order to actually do anything with this, I have to interact with the community that's going to enforce, you know, that on me. And so I'm, that's why I bring up this idea of, okay, how do we interact legally? Is there some way that the corporation has set up, you know, similar to the property taxes where we're handling this on sort of a top level so that everything going on underneath on the ground in Schilderberg town is as free as it can be while the corporation sort of handles the legal quagmire. So everything would be like a subsidiary of Schilderberg Corp. 
and then they'd handle all the legal while you handle the the day to day. Right. I mean, That's, obviously yeah, somebody's going to have to yeah. do that at some point, but it it just I'm trying to figure out the best way to handle that. Um, right. So I think yeah. I think what kind of what your your point is though is that you don't want to operate under the licensure. Right. Of, of well, the in my and, in my yeah. current in my current situation, yeah, I'm basically just like, hey, let me bring this over. Oh, you like that? Well, I got another bottle. Why don't you help me? You know, yeah, make yeah. some more. But if I actually set up a legitimate seller because I'm yeah. doing this agorist thing, then that's when it becomes like, oh crap, you know, I, I have right. to become legit in the current society, no matter. Well, that's where we just you know where I live, I guess. Keep it in the community, I guess. Yeah, I guess you could sell it at the Childerberg Bar um, and make it a, a thing like, oh, you can only get it here kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, you, you can do that. And also, if the if if this is something that you could petition for the corporation to do is the corporation gets now, granted, this would sort of uh, also sort of, uh, I guess, counter the, it being an Agora thing, but the corporation could have a brew pub license and right. and they can sell on site. That's legal. So um so that might be, I mean, it is sort of, I, I see, I, I kind of understand. I guess this all fun, this all goes under, uh, you know, paying off their blood money. Yeah, uh, it kind of does. And, and, and well, that's one thing that like my wife and I have been discussing this too, kind of on that same thing is like, how radical do we want to be on this? And for both of us, I mean, we plan on having kids. So like, I don't, I don't want to be so radical that it, has the possibility of me getting Ruby Ridge and my son, you know, getting right. blasted or whatever, uh, or her getting blasted, you know? Yeah. Um, there's definitely a sweet spot. Yeah. yeah. And I, and I, so I think there is sort of that, uh, I, I think maybe because it's a community that wants to live in a particular way, that might be something that is better to funnel through the corporation, mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. so that you can, you can still do what you're doing. And in the community, it's basically, um, it's basically, mm-hmm the same the Agora way, but you are getting the protection. You have the protection racket because the, the yeah, corporation the has, yeah, you've got the cover, the, the you're selling it only at that bar or whatever. And that bar does have a brew pub license. Yeah. So um, yep. now whatever else is on top of that, that would be definitely something to look into. I'd be interested in that a lot. And, uh, and, and definitely something that I think like in a community, like with people like us in it, that would be something that they'd be interested in too, where they're like, look, we want to, we want to live this particular way. And we have specifically employed this higher level organization as an umbrella to, as sort of a, as a barrier basically between the state and us. Mm-hmm. And now granted, I'm sure that the legal fees and stuff would be high. That's probably why we would have to set up as part of the corporation, like a war chest, legal war chest kind mm-hmm. of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's, that's actually, that's a good thought on that. Uh, yeah, I'm not also yeah. going back to what uh, Cole Highway said. I, I do think it's important not to be too uh, like secessionistic or to like um, to the point where it's like, oh yeah, th- that's that compound over there, right? Like, yeah. they can, mm-hmm. like they tried to do with Waco, it, 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 especially if we uh, if it was like you know, oh yeah, we rent out things to people like tourists who want to come over and hunt or fish, right? Right. That would definitely yeah, right. generate like a camaraderie with a neighboring town or something like that. And that would kind of, you know, at least in the eye of the public, give us cover. You see, yeah, yeah. yeah there's there's that also. Um, Jared at, from Peaceful Treason brought this up when we were at Childerberg and we were talking about this. Is another thing that we might encourage just as as residents of Childerberg Town is to join the local ro- Rotary Club, join the you know the local Lions or whatever yeah. in town. Uh, make sure that we 
have public events in our common space where people are from town mm-hmm. are invited. You know, if you're interested in being like a volunteer firefighter or whatever, make sure that you go and do those types of things. If you're religious, go, to, you know, like if, if, you know, Rollo McFlugel is Catholic, he and I went to church when he was out here visiting. Um, there's probably not going to be a Catholic church at Childerberg town just because I don't think, well, maybe we'll have enough parishioners for it. I don't know. I'm not sure how that works for the Catholics, but um, there's for sure in town going to be a Catholic church because there's Catholic churches everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, yeah, we do our if, best to integrate with the, the locals. Yeah, exactly. I was, so, I, I was just thinking like of Lodge or something like that, like an Oaks club. Yeah. 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 I was just thinking of how you were originally planning to shuttle people from Childerberg to the LP caucus. Right. And I, I do, I guess my, my brain's kind of on that now. Like, okay. So if we have people that are interested in it, but they're not as cray cray, about it like they can still uh you know we can have the have this good outreach and marketing where it's like hey come check out this thing we're doing over here isn't it cool here get some souvenirs and and have have a drink you know yeah yeah and that was kind of when before all this covid stuff that was definitely mm-hmm. the plan for childerberg dose was that i i specifically chose emma long metropolitan park because it was only like a 10 or 15 minute drive away from the lp and uh, mm-hmm. well, well, I'm not particularly interested in what the Libertarian Party's doing. I kind of mm-hmm. am, but uh, there was going to be a lot of people there that I were, was interested in. The Lions of Liberty guys were going to be mm-hmm. there, and I'm friends with Mark and uh, Brian uh, to a little bit lesser extent. But Howie was going to be there from Lions of Liberty, and he and I get along pretty well. Um, uh, I, I wanted to meet Tom Woods, and he was supposedly going to be there. Plus, uh, Michael Heiss was going to be there. And I like him. I like what the Mises Caucus is doing. I don't, I, I'm not, that's right. not really my jam, but um. I, I, I like people doing things and I also just like people. I like seeing people and I also want people to come hang out with me. And so mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm selfish in that way. I just want to hang out with people. So, uh, so that was, that was the original idea is to get the chill dozer going between the two events and just shuttling people back and forth. If they want to go to the LP, cool. But then word of mouth kind of spreads the LP and you shuttle them back to Childeberg and they, mm-hmm. they, you know, have a couple of beers, go jump in the lake, uh, you know, get around the campfire, argue about politics and stuff like that. Cause that's what we all like to do. And, <laughs> yep. uh, and then, uh, and then, and then, you know what the, the bus is leaving again in an hour, you get on the, you get on the bus and go back. And um, I could definitely see something like that going on with Childerberg town is that, you know, if you, if you, and, and a good way to save on gas too, if, you know, if the Childozer is going into town on Saturday to pick up groceries and stuff like that, just, you know, sign up on the sheet We'll give you uh, some space to put your groceries on on it or in the trailer or whatever, and we'll drive down. We'll spend a couple of hours in town, and then everybody aboard and head back up. But in that time, you know, people could also just ride back up with us if they if they know in advance, and if they mm-hmm. want to just go spend the day hiking up there or whatever and get a ride back later, I, I'm perfectly happy to do that. I like doing, you know, like I said, I like doing that kind of thing. I, I like to drive around with people, talk to them. I like people seeing the things that I'm doing. Um, so that could be another model where people just, you know you're going one way or the other people can save on gas and go back and forth if they want. Um, or they can come stay the night. If we have, if we have, you know, uh, some sort of, you know, the, the camp that I go to in, in Washington state has, uh, a secondary lodge and the secondary lodge has hotel rooms available for rent. Uh, if the camp's not full, you can just come out and rent it. And it's in a beautiful place. So people do come out there and just rent a room. It's, it's a very modest room. Um, but, uh, it's, you know, one bed and a bathroom. 
Uh, but uh, that's really all a lot of people need. And if they want to come out up and spend the weekend or whatever, and we're already driving back and forth, that's another good way to integrate is if somebody is a townie and they live in town, they may not be liber- liberty oriented, but they're nature oriented. They just want to mm-hmm. come out and check out the hiking trails or, uh, or they've got a tag to go take a elk or something like yeah. that. You know, they can come up or go fishing or whatever it is. Um, that's a good way to kind of make it, make you not seem like a bunch of Waco people. Like, right. Uh, yeah. Or, you know, branch of I, I think not having it like explicitly political would also like do a lot of good, right? It would be if if it was couched in more like cultural terms. Oh yeah, like yeah. this is a, just a, a cool, chill, free or a place to you know uh, live kind of how you want. You know, just yeah, if it kind of couched in those terms, I think that would be a huge benefit, right? Yeah, that's that's a yeah. that's kind of what CeeLo did because although it was founded by Quakers, the right. language was very specifically chosen in the charter not to be Quaker, it's, it's for people with these particular goals. And so, uh, if we, if we, if we make our, um, trust have language that is in alignment with our views, but is not explicitly, you know, libertarian or agorist or whatever, mm-hmm. um, that does just kind of make it more like, Hey, this is an intentional community. We just want to be in, live in peace. And if right. you can live this way, you probably agree with us on most things, but, mm-hmm. uh, even if you don't, you know, and and you and you mesh real well with the community. I'm fine with. I don't really right. care what people think. Other, you know, that, that's fine. Yep. I guess what what we could even do is have like a a town rules board, and like rule number one is no politics. And <laughs> yeah. so like the idea is like this is a chill place, no screeching Karens, no, uh, you know, infight libertarian infighting. Even like it, we could specifically yeah. <laughs> say like the whole idea of this is it's a getaway town, and some of us want to live this lifestyle. Whether yeah. whether some of us are into sustainability and some of us are into you know just smoking weed and kicking back, yeah. Um, but if you design it that way, I mean, I could see a lot of even like Californians being like, well, aside from you, uh, Californians yeah, yeah. being, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Open to that, I guess. Yeah, I, I think so too. And you know, one of the things that was really encouraging to me, uh, both Childerberg one and Dose is. Uh, I think this works really well when done correctly because all of the people at Childeberg one and Childeberg two, most of us didn't really know each other and we showed up and just immediately clicked. Uh, and there was, there was, there was very little, I don't think anybody had any fights or anything like that arguments really. There was, there was talk about, and a lot of it was political ideas and stuff like that. But like I would go, I would walk away from the fire. People are talking about, actually, I think, I think Cotton was the one who announced uh, that Joe Jorgensen won and we all going, who? And, uh, <laughs> and then, and then I walk away from the fire and come back and we're talking about Bigfoot and it's like, you know, that's, that's the way it is. And people just really, they got along the conversation, people split off into separate conversations. They came back mm-hmm. together and the conversations meshed again. Some people were just out drinking. The, a couple of people were out just, you know, smoking weed, you know, doing their thing, talking elsewhere. We played bocce for a while, that sort of stuff. Like that's kind of how I envision this town just all the time is, you know, you, you do your work, whatever you're doing, however you make money, you know, you do your thing. And then, uh, you know, I, I take, I usually take like an hour and a half long break in the middle of the day from my work. If I lived in Childerberg town, I just walk out of my house and go see if somebody's around for me to like have a beer with or whatever. Like that would be, yeah. that's, that's the community like I envision yeah. is any, and if I don't find anybody fine, I had a, I had a really nice walk through my community. Right. So, Mm-hmm. It's kind of it's kind of like I don't know if you guys had this when you were kids. Did your did your parents like send you outside and say like go play with the neighborhood kids and then uh, when the sun goes down you got to be back. Yeah. So that was always our rule. And I remember distinctly 
and I don't know if people thought I was weird or if this was just like the, the thing that we did back in, you know, the mid nineties or whatever was, um, you ride your bike around, you go to the kids that are roughly your age's house, you knock on the door and go, is Brian here? Or is, is Danny here or whoever, you know, and they'd be like, Mm -hmm. Oh no, he's doing something else. You go, okay. And then you ride your bike to the next person that you know is roughly your age and (laughs) and just knock on the door. I I feel like at, at, at 30, at almost 34 years old, that would be kind of what I'd be doing is just going around as somebody out like working in their yard that I can like talk their ear off for a little while (laughs) or they they could throw a football at me or something. And and I do think that aesthetic is really important, right? Like having like almost a, a built-in camaraderie with like people, you know, especially that's a very, very important. It's, it's essential pretty much in my opinion. Yeah. And I, I think yeah. that, I think in a community, this roughly this size where mm-hmm. people going into it already have these types of agreements uh, in mind. Yeah. Encourages that. Yep. Uh, and you know, you still, and you've got like, like at, at um, village homes in uh, California, they do, they set this up intentionally to have a lot of, common areas where you do see people so mm-hmm. um and, and it's it's a i don't know if it still is but when it was created it was a community for families and so a lot of that is is based around places where kids can play open fields playgrounds that kind of thing um and you know i'm sure we'll have something like that at childerberg town and any sort of community like this probably will have something similar uh you know i don't i i'm sure that the age range of kids will uh, vary at first, but when you start getting a large enough community, then you kind of do have kids that are, you know, roughly the same age. And if you don't like, like what we were talking about is if you're 30 minutes close to a town, there's another, another in with the community is that your kids are going into town to play with the kids, uh, there and their kids are coming up to play at your place. Especially this is like another project that, uh, um, is always on my mind is, uh, did you have, do you, any of you guys read Mary Ruert, uh, healing our world? Oh, I did not read it. Okay, it's yep. a, it's a really good book. In this one section of it, she talks about. Uh, I don't think it's a real concept. It's just something that she's describing. But it's called the Quest School, and uh, it's basically it's sort of like open campus schooling uh, mixed with homeschooling, where uh, people can either bring their kids or do it online. But it does kind of give some sort of connection to uh, people and makes it uh, more affordable. And it, that's another thing that I think is an interesting ramification of COVID is the amount of people who are now, who probably never would have considered homeschooling before are now going, you know what, maybe I was wrong that homeschoolers are weirdos. Like I was homeschooled and mm-hmm. I am kind of weird, but I was homeschooled like, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was public schooled and I'm super weird. So, <laughs> that's true. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, but like it was a, it was a good experience for me, but I did make a lot of friends because we did, we we always called it homeschool school, but it was basically, there was like a building that had uh, rooms for rent. And we would, if like my mom didn't know how to teach a certain subject or, uh, you know, my grandma and my mom kind of taught me together. If one of them didn't know how to teach a particular subject, we would usually uh, go to the homeschool school and one of the parents would teach a subject uh, that they understood better than my parents. Um, Mm -hmm. And so we made friends doing that. There was also just, it was just a good way to meet other people that were doing stuff. And like, I took a Taekwondo class with them and I took a rock climbing class with them and stuff like that. So like that kind of thing too, would be maybe a good um, outreach to the community nearby. And if we did like, you know, Ron Paul homeschool curriculum co-op type thing that there might be people, there might be people in town who want to do that, but they work. So they can't really 
they can't really do it all the time, but they'd be willing to send, you know, the kids up to the Childerberg yeah. Town Lodge where they could just sit and do their homework there and somebody's there to watch them. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's also a great opportunity for like to kind of like slip in or reintroduce the concept of like mutual aid back into yeah. people's yeah. lives. Yeah. Or yeah. just cooperative in general because it, yeah. it's just cooperative homeschooling. Yeah. Yeah, and the co-op homeschooling is is a really good strategy for people who um, probably can't dedicate the full amount of time that they need to, to teaching their kids. And, and we do see this kind of post-COVID popping up where uh, people in neighborhoods are starting to do this, where they're like, you know what, I don't want to send my kid back, whether COVID's real or not. Uh, they They just did so much better at home than in school, and they're so much less miserable. But I still want them to kind of see kids, and I've got to go back to work. So they've been setting up like rotations with, with parents where like, and I could do this um, with my job is, you know, if the kids are doing Ron Paul self-directed curriculum, I can answer questions and stuff like that. And then I can just sit in the same room and do my work. It's uh, Mm a, I mean, like all I'm doing all day is looking at financial stuff and, and writing code. So uh, it doesn't bother me to be interrupted as long as they're quiet when I'm on on a phone call with a uh, customer and I can always just, you know, step into the other room or something. You know, mm-hmm. so anyways, that's, that's another, also another, um, possibly another economic avenue too, is if, if there are parents right. who want to do that, but, but would prefer to pay than to, uh, do some sort of co-op thing. Maybe that's a, uh, maybe that's an option. Yeah. I so, was just thinking about how, um, it, it's funny when you put it in terms of schooling that I, I think people kind of think it's, it's really outlandish, but really all it is, is it's not that different from how you might say, uh, okay, mom, can you watch my kids for a couple hours while my wife gets off work? You know what I mean? Like, I, I think people are, have really disconnected the idea of schooling from the sort of family idea. Like we're, we have our family and our extended family and, and the people in our neighborhoods or whatever. And we all just like, oh, hey, I've got to run to the store really quick. Uh, go over to your buddy's house down the street and uh, I'll come get you later when I get back, that kind of thing. Yeah. That's a, that's a good idea. I, I think. And we, we did that when I was a kid too. It's like, is like, yeah. cause we knew people in the neighborhood. So she'd just be like, Hey, or usually my mom would call, but she'd just say, Hey, you're going to go over there for 20 minutes while I run down to the grocery store or something. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. So there's sort of a mentality around schooling. I think that's taken that away all the time. Can you say that again? Oh, no, I was just agreeing that I used to do that all the time growing up as well. Oh, okay. Where we just go down the street to our friends when parents had to go out or they come over when they had to go out or whatever. Yeah. I think, I mean, I don't, I guess it, I'm kind of out of this loop because I don't have kids and it's been a while since I've been a kid, but my impression is that people don't do that kind of thing as often as they used to. Mm-hmm. Oh, I have, I have no idea. My kids are still super young. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I have, I have coworkers that will like, like I was saying, like, Oh, my mom's watching the kids or whatever, but it seems like it's more like direct family members anymore. Like we don't have, we don't have that tight knit community. Like, Oh, your, your friend lives two houses away, go hang out at his house for a while. Um, And I think that's what we're trying to recreate here, I guess, with this community idea. Yeah, I I think so too. And I think it's, um, I think I think a lot of people I think might be independently of you know our political ideology and that kind of stuff. I think independently they're starting to kind of realize that some mistake was made and that 
there has been a loss of community, yeah. whether they can put their finger on it or not. But I, I, like I see other people, I see people expressing this from um, very far left ideologies or even just kind of like, you know, normie centrists or whatever, where mm-hmm. they just kind of are like, they just know something's wrong. And a lot of it, I think, is people who did grow up in a different way. And then they go like, why is it not like this anymore? Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's also a lot of opportunity that uh, it could be had here where you can like slip in these ideas without making them explicitly uh, uh, known to people that, that you could couch them in ways that would be appealing to almost everyone, right? Without being explicit about their true like ideolo- ideologically, ideolo- ideological nature. Yeah, yeah, I mean, essentially, that. we're talking about just making friends, right? Right, right. We're, right. we're teaching ourselves and others how to make friends again and neighbors. That's right. Yeah, that makes, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. That's, that's actually a good way to couch it, too, because um, mm-hmm. well, that's actually, you know, kind of going back to CeeLo, that's the, so Quakers don't call themselves Quakers. Like we, call us, we call it the Religious Society of Friends. And mm-hmm. uh, so that's kind of the, sort of the same thing is that like they're, it's, if you know Christ, then you're, you're his friend. That's where it comes from. But you're also friends of everybody else who believes in that. So that's kind of, I think, interesting that it kind of goes back to CeeLo, which was the most attractive model to me, but also the most attractive model to many of you, mm-hmm. uh, where yeah. um, that it, it is sort of, that's really was the goal of CeeLo was community building. And even back in 1937, I guess there was um, either some sort of lack of that, maybe. I, I don't know. I'm not, I, I'm curious to see what the history of CeeLo is now. What else was going on at the time, right? We just got out of, the Great Recession, they had the Great Depression, right? That's true. And, and, and I think there's uh, a cyclical breakdown of society that's happening. Yeah. And I think actually the founder and or several of the founders were also interned for refusing the draft. Uh, so that might be mm-hmm. also where they kind of were like, well, maybe we need to uh, think of a way to be kind of low-key separate and mm-hmm. uh, not get rounded up again and put into inter- internment camps. Because uh, I mean that happened to not just the the Quakers, but to the uh, Mennonites and the Amish and the Anabaptists. Yeah. Actually, even here in Texas, the Anabaptists, which uh, I think live actually down near Waco, um, they all, uh, you know, they they live plain simple lives, but they also refuse to fight in war, and that is uh, a good way to, especially during a war when they're trying to draft you, a good way to attract the ire of the yeah. state. Um, but- and that's. The Quakers are some of my favorite like groups in America, like the, and they almost never get the credit or noticed by almost anyone. Yeah, I, I have a conspiracy theory that that's like way on purpose because oh, I, I I wouldn't be surprised. Like those the history books because I I was homeschooled most of uh, growing up, but the couple of years that I was in school, they would mention them in the history books. They'd be like, oh yeah, mm-hmm. Quakers, they're the ones who believe the Bible is equal to all other books, which is not exactly true, and. And then they'd be like, and that's about it. And then you move on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's like, and you're like, are you kidding me? They were like the most powerful political force up until the late 1700s in much of the colonies. Mm-hmm. And then simultaneously agreed that being in political power was against Christ and quit. Right. I, I mean, like these are major players in American history. Yeah. And it's very interesting that it's, it's, and I think it's, I think, because I think you see this also with the Anabaptists and uh, Mennonites more so than the Amish. The Amish have always mm-hmm. been much more separate, but the yeah. uh, the Anabaptists and Mennonites too have this heritage of peace. But they've also been very influential in uh, much of American history. But yeah. they're kind of left out. And I think it. I think it might be that peace aspect where they're just right. like, yeah, we can't have these people in there. And the uh, the Christian abolitionists also get erased from history books too. There were many uh, like uh, very cr- uh, Christian like anarchist abolitionists. Yeah, and they just never talked about. Lysander Spinner. 
Uh, no, no. I, even, <laughs> well, but I don't think I don't know how religious he was, but no, I, I was in kind of there were there was I forget the name of this group. It was a Christian abolitionist group, and they, these guys were like radical anarchists, and they're never talked about. They're not even in history yeah. books. It's, yeah, yeah so nice. I had I had to look it up, but there's there's actually it's a great story, so it should be in history books just because it's really <laughs> cool. There was this Quaker dwarf named Benjamin Lay, and he <laughs> lived he lived in a cave with his dwarf wife. Oh. And um, and he was he was an abolitionist, and he in the 1600s he got uh, all of the Quakers in the Pennsylvania colony, and uh, I think then it was the Maryland colony, maybe it was part of Virginia too. I don't. Know. He got them all through like these like weird theatrics to just give up all their slaves. Oh, and, that's cool. Yeah, they, there's a really good book about him. Actually, I think Tom Woods had the author on um, Benjamin Lay. Uh, He's a weirdo. He was actually like a hardcore, like, um, um, like green anarchist kind of, but like proto anarchist, and okay. also, but also believed in like that's why he lived in a cave. He also believed uh-huh. in like, um, like living in harmony with the land and stuff. He's a really interesting character, and just because he's such oh. a weird guy, yeah. There's a book. The book is called, um, dang it, what is it called? I'll look. I'll look it up and I'll put put it in the chat at some point. I can't remember who wrote it. But really interesting character. <laughs> okay, yeah, it sounds like a treat to read. <laughs> yeah, actually, he has this one this one uh, event when he first like uh, when he first started this. He he cut out the middle of his Bible and filled it with like uh, squished up raspberries, and then um, went to the Quaker church. And so Quaker service is silent, but you're allowed to stand up and, and give a message if the spirit moves you. Uh, and so in the middle, he he dressed up in like military regalia. And in uh, the middle of the uh, silent period, he stood up and pierced the Bible with a sword so that the berry juice would like spill out like blood. <laughs> he was really, he's just like a super interesting character and like very theatric. Yeah, very theatrical, like had a lot of these really interesting uh, movements and, and super influential in the abolitionist movement way before uh, the abolitionist yeah, movement was kind of. That was, that's really early for like the, yeah. Yeah, it might have been the early 1700s. I, I, it was early though, and but but yeah. through his through his um, actions, he did convince uh, Quakers as a community just to give up slavery. They and uh, Germantown, I think, in Pennsylvania was the first one to legally abolish it, uh, and which was a Quaker community as well. Um, in, in very interesting history, but yeah. Um, but we're coming up on the end of uh, our time, and I've got to get going to bed here soon. Does anybody have anything that they want to wrap up with before? Uh, I sign us all off. Uh, I would just thank you for uh, setting this up. This has been a really, really interesting and uh, fun discussion. And I'm very, very excited for this. Yeah, thanks, Jacob. Yeah. Thank you. Nice guys. Lot, um, and now I'm going to have to ask Ace to help mm-hmm. me figure out how to stop this. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I can stop it real quick. Hang on. Uh... Oh, actually, if I go to chat links, maybe, or no, 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 if I go to, oh, bot commands, bot commands, right? Yeah.